Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 223. Yes, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Kicking off with a, a special today, we have a Jason Sanford special one, in my eyes, kind of one of the kind of hot, talented writers out there that I just love Jason's work. And we're going to have two stories by Jason as well. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We've had a little bit of change around with the art. And as you know, kind of Skeet's taking over the art there from Brian. Brian, we miss you. But I've also asked Skeet to kind of, instead of me waffling on about the art, you know what I mean? Get Skeet to kind of have a little chat about it. So as you know, or I hope you know, have a look at the fantastic art. I'll get Skeet to have a little few words about the artist. Then we have one of the stories by Jason Sanford. The Never Never Wizard of the Apolicho by Jason Sanford. Then we have Poetry Planet by Anne, by, by Anne, by Diane Severson. Diane, this is, um, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. Then we've got an essay from Jason Sanford, and this is, was at the beginning of his short story collection, Never Never Stories. So that's really great as well. Thank you, Jason. Then we have another one of Jason's stories, Into the Depths of Illuminated Seas. And this actually was in, I think it was volume two of Starship Sofa Stories, available at all good Lulu stockists. Then finally, we have Morgan Saletta with his Everything article. Morgan, this is nice as well, sir. Now, just before we get into kind of the, the full kind of the full show, some good news. Amy H. Sturgis has sold out. <laughs> How cool is that? Yes, that's fantastic. I've been dying to say that. Yes, the Sherlock Holmes and Science Fiction video lecture, the live video lecture, it's sold out. Oh, so Ames, that's look, we're looking forward to doing that. 
I'm I'm trying to get kind of aim to, to hopefully we'll we'll do some because aim is you know what I mean. There's there's no getting away from it. One of the kind of the top lecturers in kind of science fiction and all the, this kind of goodness that we're like. So to have him you know do these kind of live video lectures just for us, that's fantastic. So if anyone's got any ideas as well, do you know what I mean? Let we're, let's come on, let's. <laughs> Just, I was going to say, let's flog Amy. I can't be saying that kind of stuff. So, well, let's get Amy busy on on the lecture circuit as well. So that that's fantastic news, Ames. That's I'm so looking forward to that. And just you know, that one's kind of like say sold out. But I've got there's two new workshops kicking off. There is. And I would love to get involved with this. You know, like the kind of Kickstarter. I don't know if everyone's noticed that Kickstarter project. I've just bought or just kind of signed up for Hidden Radio, a Bluetooth Hidden Radio. Type that into Google Kickstarter, Bluetooth Hidden Radio. What a great idea. Just, you know, all kind of from the iPhone. You can play music, but it'd be great when we go on holiday and stuff like that. So there's Mer Lafferty and Tobias Bakel who totally succeeded with their kickstarter projects they're gonna we're gonna do like a little kind of webinar so if you've got an idea you know and you want to kind of raise funds for it kickstarter is the total place to go listen to kind of come along to that one and listen to kind of mer because i think when mer put her you know her min her wage or her the the amount she wanted was something like two thousand dollars and she got nineteen thousand dollars for to write a story granted you got to write the thing and there's no way on god's green earth i could do that so then we have what what i'm looking forward to as well we've got another writers workshops last year i did one of these webinar workshops and we've got another one as well and guest speakers are Anne van der Meer, nancy kress and peter watts and <laughs> Peter sent over these kind of the title because I've asked the kind of guest speakers what their titles would be. Pete says his title is Why Science Fiction is Too Important to be Left to the Scientists, in which he'll make the argument that scientific expertise actually makes for a really shitty SF storytelling. That's just fun. As soon as I see that, I was like, oh. So if you fancy any of them webinars, them workshops, please pop over to the front of the website. Josh has kindly put them on there as well. So looking forward to that. So we'll kick off with Skeetzer about this artist. Hello, fellow Starship listeners. Skeet Sciansky here for the first of many monthly cover art reviews and bios. This is just a short news segment Tony has asked me to do to give some insight into the background of many of the talented artists who contribute to the SOFA every month. As you can see from this first cover for the 2012, we are featuring the fantastic talents of Michael Bobot. This image called Harbinger was done for Michael's agent in Germany some years ago. Michael's idea behind this piece is that it's a new semi-synthetic life form breaking away from her creators. Will she be a harbinger for the saving of the human race or for cleansing the planet? It's really a lovely work of art and it's a perfect fit for the Starship Sofa and uh, we, we thank him very much for contributing this wonderful work. Uh, just a little background on uh, Michael Bobot. Uh, he was born in California. Michael Bobot spent his uh, youth in France, Morocco, and New York. When he returned to the U.S., he constantly scanned the skies for that great American hero, Superman. While he never did find him, comics helped him learn English again and got him drawing. 
Michael has illustrated video games, books, magazines, CDs, and more for clients as diverse as LucasArts, Warner Books, Electronic Arts, Vivendi, Mythic, Sierra, Firebird Books, Activision, and the San Francisco Giants. He has been president of the San Francisco Society of Illustrators and is uh, proud to be a member of the ASIP. He has won several gold and silver awards from the San Francisco Society of Illustrators, as well as awards of merit from the New York and Los Angeles Societies. He was named as one of the new masters of fantasy by Epilogue.com, and has also been featured several times in the annual Spectrum, the best in contemporary fantastic art. He also teaches in the San Francisco Bay Area. To see more of his work, you can find him at www.mbobot.com, and that's spelled M-B-O-H-B-O-T.com. And I thank you very much for listening, and back to you, Tony. Thank you very much, Skeet. Yes, do look out at that work as well. That's just, you know what I mean, stunning. Thank you so much. Next up is the, one of the main fictions by Jason Sanford, The Never Never Wizard of Apollencio. I think I probably botched that up there, Jason, but you know what I mean, I'm sure. It's actually Josh Roseman who's doing the narration, and Josh gets it fine anyway, so there we go. The story actually appeared in Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, and Jason's very kindly let us play this today. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Never Never Wizard of Apalachicola by Jason Sanford Space slides dark, and Earth churns blue, and me, two hundred miles up, rocking through water dreams of marsh and bay and gentle downer waves, and me, Major Solomon Lawrence, sweat fogging my spacesuit visor. Eyes stinging, tongue salting, the suit's bottle-crisp air blowing the sting and taste into memories of Apalachicola Bay as a child. And a raven, a true damn-it-all raven perched before me on the station's new solar array, preening its purple-burned feathers in the vacuum of space. I pull closer to the raven, my hands shaking at the nonsensical sight. We installed the array two days ago but a glitch kept its solar panels from fully deploying. Now the raven's leather-cut talons grip the release bolt that I need to turn. I wave my quarter-million-dollar NASA wrench at the creature, but it ignores the threat. You okay, Saul? My partner, Alina Samasset, asks. Her white-suited form floats a dozen feet away, praying I haven't caused my colleagues or Mission Control to suspect the craziness I'm experiencing. I ask Alina if she notices anything strange about the release bolt. Looks the same as in practice, Alina says, as the ravens silently cause. Turn it so we can go home. Through Alina's visor, I see her lovely dark brown face, which reminds me so of my sister. How could I have forgotten my sister? The raven knows and shakes its head at my silly, silly amazement. I float closer to the bolt and the raven. A few twists from my wrench and the array's accordion panels will shoot out like oversized insect wings. After all, there is a method to affairs like this. The array, the station, the shuttle, 
my spacesuit, all are true and proper science, the result of real-world engineering. The raven can't pretend to any of that. Not that the damn bird cares. And that's when I remember everything. Remember the raven sitting malevolently on Chappelle's front porch in the swamps off Apalachicola Bay. Remember me waiting there, pistol in hand, to kill that damn wizard for taking my sister. How Chappelle laughed in his gravel-magicked voice. How the raven flew at me. How I woke, floating in the bay. Two husky fishermen pulling me onto their boat, asking if I was okay. And me, not knowing the answer. Until now. You need help there, Saul? Alina's radiostatic voice asks, concerned at my delay. I mutter, no, and raise the wrench to the bolt. The raven jumps aside and watches me twist the bolt one, two, three times. With a silent rush, the solar panels unfold and extend, instantly pushing their added power into the space station. Well done, Alina says as the raven bows sarcastically. Sweat tickles my face, beating in the weightlessness. Through my visor, I see the light blue waters of the Gulf of Mexico and the browns and greens of Florida. I search the panhandle for Apalachicola Bay, but there are too many clouds. So, this is how he summons me, I think. Even up here, I can't escape him. The raven grins. How do birds grin? Sunlight angling its razor beak. Random memories blot my mind. I hear an old professor describing the angle of descent needed for the space shuttle to avoid burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. I see Mom tucking me into bed as forgotten jazz standards play over her transistor radio. I feel the tired twang of my body as I study in the library. My sister whispering how I can be anything I want. Anything I set my mind to. As if tasting my memories, the raven caws silent agreement before slamming its beak through my spacesuit and heart. I no longer care who knows the craziness of my life and broadcast scream for all the world to hear. The bay's sweet waterfish scent after passing storms. The waves rasping against pilings under our tiny house, the taste of our home's salt run and sun-shrunk boards, the knowledge we were the only thing for miles except for swamps and bay, alligators and fish, and Chappelle. Never forget Chappelle. Our home was simple, built of hand-hewn planks nailed over cut tree-trunk pilings, with my mom's beloved transistor radio the only bit of modernity allowed inside. Every evening we'd sit on our front porch, mom and dad, me and my sister Diane, who was seven years older than me, and listen to that radio until the batteries ran low. I still remember Mom's rage one night when a newscaster interrupted our evening jazz with news of Dr. King's assassination. Mom began cursing the white bastard who'd killed him, but my father clamped his large hands over her mouth and held her tight, whispered, It's not worth it, hun. Not worth going back to Chappelle. Until Mom calmed down. Diane and I sat silently on the porch, shocked by Mom's curse and Dad's words. In a low voice, Diane asked what Dad meant by going back to Chappelle. Dad sighed and pointed at the star-like lights of an oyster boat passing in the dark bay, and at the true stars above. He then told us stories. 
how he'd grown up one of the Khoi Khoi people, tending to his father's cattle herds until a siren's call pulled him to the Cape of Good Hope, where he fought a sea serpent with a magic sword and lived, how our mother, as a child of the Serengeti, hiked for weeks until she reached Mount Kilimanjaro, where she demanded the wizards there help her people survive a drought, how the two of them fell in love while in service for centuries to the world's most powerful and dangerous wizard. The stories poured out of him for hours, of a world Diane and I could barely comprehend, of magic lapping like the waves in our bay, of enchanted swords and demons, of quests for honor and revenge. Diane and I lit up his stories, and I wished I could be a wizard in this long-ago world. But eventually, Mom cut him off and whispered of the horrible things they'd also experienced, of magic slavery, of unending cancerous wars, of children and people killed in a million ignoble ways, of how powerless she and our father felt growing up in a world where only the magical succeeded. Magic is rarely a good thing, she said. There are worlds you don't want existing in your lives. So true. Dad said. Magic lives off the loves and pains of others. It's never the wizards or witches who suffer for their spells. Diane and I didn't know what to say. After sitting in silence for a while, Mom and Dad carried us to our beds, where Diane and I fell into an exhausted sleep, as if attacked by one of those fanciful spells of old. After that, they never again spoke of magic, despite Diane and I continually pestering them about it. Our parents worked the oyster factories near town, riding a wooden boat with a rusty outboard to and from work. For most of the year, they dropped us off at school on the way to town and picked us up after closing. When school was out, Diane watched me while our parents worked. The summer I turned eight and Diane fifteen, a gale blew up as our parents were boating home. For three days, we waited for their return. Finally, a sheriff's patrol craft towing our parents' swamped boat sputtered up to our rickety dock. Two deputies stepped out, along with a white woman we recognized from school as the county social worker. The deputies, one white, the other black, stood back as the social worker kneeled before Diane. Honey, the woman drawled condescendingly, there has been an accident. Diane nodded her skinny muscle body tensing like fishing line hooked to a barracuda. The white woman hemmed and hawed before finally admitting our parents had drowned when their boat overturned in the storm. A tide of numbness flowed through me. I glanced through the planks of our dock at the low tide revealing mud and watched a crab scurry after its meal. The social worker cocked an eye at our house, obviously not impressed. Do you have any relatives we can take you to? she asked. Our grandmother's inside, Diane said quickly. We'll get her. I started to say we didn't have a grandmother, or any other relatives for that matter, but I shut up at a glare from Diane. She grabbed my hand and pulled me to the house, the screen door slamming shut after us. Through the cracks in the wood plank walls, she watched the social worker talk with the deputies. They'll take us away, she whispered. What do you mean? I asked, still trying to imagine our parents as dead. I couldn't feel it. That must mean they were alive. Maybe they were floating in the bay, waiting for us to rescue them. They won't let us stay here. We won't be a family anymore. 
Diane paced back and forth across our kitchen floor, the floorboards creaking under her weight. Through the cracks in the wall, I saw the social worker and deputies grow agitated. They knew we were stalling. Suddenly, Diane hugged me tight and told me to keep up. Holding my hand, she grabbed our mom's favorite belonging, her transistor radio, and our dad's machete, and led me out the back door. We ran the long plank to the ground and raced toward the swamps. The deputies yelled to stop, but they only followed us a little ways before giving up. We hid in the swamps as they stalked back to their boat. They're leaving, I said, proud of our little victory. They'll bring hounds, Diane said, caressing the radio in her hands. And more people. I sat among the knees of a swamp cypress, remembering how I always sat between Mama's knees when she cut my hair. I cried. I wanted to go with the social worker and the deputies. I wanted to find my parents and not spend the rest of my life hiding in a swamp. Diane saw the look on my face and kissed me on the cheek. Don't worry, she said. We'll hide out tonight. Soon as it's morning, we'll go see Chappelle. He'll make everything right. I am famous. I am history. The first astronaut to suffer a heart attack in space and survive. I don't remember much of the hours and days after Alina saved me by pulling me to the airlock. Instead, I see as if by magic. I see the raven floating outside the space station while the crew gives what medical attention they can, which mostly involves keeping me sedated. I see the tear in my suit from the raven's beak, even as my colleagues swear over and over that there's nothing to see, only me suffering a heart attack. My dead mom and dad also whisper to me, saying how proud they are, how proud that I've used this math and science and engineering to turn my world into something real. I don't understand what they mean, but I still blush in happiness like a little child. When I ask about my sister, they stop whispering. During the shuttle's re-entry, orange fire glow licks the windows, and the raven swoops and dives on the burning thermals. Once we land, the raven caws a single time before soaring into the blue, as if to say, its work is done. Which is also what the doctors say months later, when I finally leave the hospital. My fellow astronauts, along with a room stuffed with NASA brass, shepherd me through a press conference as news cameras and reporters pretend they matter. But I'm already gone, in my mind, that is, already in Apalachicola. One of the reporters asks about my plans. A wizard. I plan to kill a wizard. The doctors and astronauts and bigwigs and reporters giggle nervously, mistaking this for a joke they can't comprehend. Unlike most of Florida, Apalachicola hasn't changed much since I was a child, aside from the fact that I can now order a soda from the pharmacy, like any white person. In fact, I'm the biggest person to come out of the town since Dr. John Gorey invented his ice-freezing machine here before the Civil War. I untie my rented boat, a 15-foot Boston whaler, from the dock. I'm hit by the taste of salt and sting, the smell of water and decay. The oyster boats around me creak and groan as wood and rope stretch. The wind is climbing and a light rain splatters, soaking the oyster men who are busy tying down their boats. The skies blow as if a gale is nearing, even though there's nothing in the forecast but clear skies and sun. As I pull my boat out, 
Several oystermen yell to me that I should ride the gale out on shore. I wave back without answering, imagining my parents working these docks as they hauled oysters back to the warehouses to shuck. I wonder if they saw the same gale-whipped skies when they left this dock that final time. Far above, a black bird soars lazy circles in the storm's updrafts. I don't bother asking if it's my raven. The storm quickly builds, and the fifteen-footers too small for waves swelling five, six feet high. I merely pull my raincoat tighter and ride across the bay, daring the wizard to do his worst. I'm halfway home when the sea serpent strikes. The raven wasn't at Chappelle's shack when Diane and I arrived after hiding all night in the swamps. Instead, Chappelle himself sat in a split wood and leather rocking chair on the shack's porch. His skin, stretched thin across bones as if by unseen hands, rippled like a muddy river at flood time. He sweated in the morning's heat and humidity and held a walking stick, which looked to have been carved from a single fanged tooth longer than his legs. A raven's head bobbled on the stick's grip as if broken or loosed by time itself. My angry teenage sister demanded the return of our parents. In her hands, she held Mom's radio and Dad's machete. They wouldn't want to return, Chappelle stated. You're lying, Diane screamed, pointing the machete at him. Fix it, or I'll kill you. I stood in the stubby grass in front of Chappelle's shack. I'd only come here a few times with Mom always when she was delivering some jar of preserves or a bolt of cheap fabric. Show respect, she always told me before each visit. Never give him anything else, but he's entitled to your respect. As if to prove the right in Mom's words, Chappelle's eyes narrowed at my sister's insolence. He gripped his walking stick and tapped it on the porch's grooved planks. Why did you come here? he asked. Mom said you could do anything, said if we were in trouble to come to you. Chappelle groaned as if terribly put upon, but he winked at me, and I knew he was playing, like my parents played at anger when I tracked sand and mud into our house. Chappelle glanced us up and down and announced he was a wizard. Are there really such things? Diane asked. Are those stories Mom and Dad told us really true? If you don't believe, why are you here? he asked. At that, Diane said nothing. Your parents served me wonderfully for many centuries, but they wanted to live their own lives, so I released them. I'm sorry they died, but to intervene would have meant giving up what they worked so hard for. I didn't understand, only knew my parents weren't coming back. I sat in the stub grass and cried. Diane walked over and picked me up even though I was too big for her to hold for long. They'll send us away, she said. Please, we're all the family we've got. Chappelle stood slowly, supporting himself with that carved tooth walking stick, which shook and bent as much as his skinny body. I'm not a bad man, he said, stepping toward the dark of his shack's open door. But I make deals. It's what keeps me going. What can you offer for my help? Diane sat me back on the ground and stepped onto the porch. Chappelle nodded and walked through his shack's doorway, which swallowed him to the murmur of far-distant voices, voices angry at what the world had become, 
voices angry at Chappelle. Diane paused for a moment before following him inside. The sea serpent is smaller than I'd imagined from my father's stories, only three times as long as my boat, and slender as a telephone pole. Maybe this is all a wizard can pull together these days. I don't have a magic sword, like my father fought his serpent with, but I do have a pistol. I do have a shotgun. My weapons. My weapons of science. But I reach for neither. Instead, I'm curious about this storm, which could have been bad enough to sink me. I'm curious about this tiny sea serpent, so I kill the dual outboards, causing the boat to slip broadside to the storm's waves. The boat tips, about to capsize, as the serpent shoots out, wrapping its body around the hull and holding it steady. That's what we call an experiment, I yell over the wind. A way to test a hypothesis. Now we both know you aren't here to kill me. The serpent's body twines around the boat like its kin must have done to sailing ships hundreds of years ago. It shrieks its fanged maw at me from a yard away, rage and anger and poison splattering my face. But it doesn't strike. Accepting my hypothesis as correct, the serpent sets my boat once again heading into the waves and releases me. I gun the engines and ride on. My family house is gone. Decades of waves and hurricanes have rearranged the shoreline so the mudflats where my parents grew our home are only empty shallows. The gale has already sucked back into the blue sky from which it was created, so I easily pilot my boat to where our house would have stood. A single rotten piling rises from the tiny waves. The single seagull sitting on top of it eyes me with irritation. I tie off the boat and wade to shore the shotgun on my back, the pistol holstered on my hip. Mud sucks my boots six inches down, and the waist-high seagrass cuts my hands and arms. Still, nothing to be done. Soon I reach the swamps leading to Chappelle's shack. Ghosts of wizards and witches fly through cypress trees, caressing the trees' up-jutting knees and skimming the brackish waters. They cast rainbow spells and magic at each other in hazy displays which pass through the trees and water and me like never-never words. Some of them turn toward me, promising riches and enchanted swords, and even my family, if only I'll return magic to this world. Others threaten saying I'll suffer unless I return their world to them. Most importantly, the ghosts whisper that no matter how strong the spell, it only lasts so long, that even the most powerful wizard's magic must be renewed again and again by the lives of those who felt the spell's pain and power. I remember my father's words, how magic lives off the loves and pains of others. My parents whisper not to trust these ghosts, but to instead do what I know to be right. Holding my shotgun before me, I walk the path to Chappelle. I never knew the deal my sister and Chappelle struck, but when we returned to our house, life was as it had been, except for our parents being gone. Our family boat was repaired and floating. The deputies and social worker never returned to hunt us down. And when we needed food, money appeared in the same cubbyhole where mom and dad always hid their meager savings. 
Diane now piloted our boat across the bay each school day, but where before my sister had been laid back, daydreaming of boys or the new radio she wanted to buy our mother, now she was driven. She pushed me to study science and math and history and religion and English, too. Each day after school, sitting in Apalachicola's tiny library, she would grill me on my studies and throw new learning at me, which my teachers hadn't even taught. We'd stay in that library until the setting sun hurried us to our boat ride home. Occasionally, a teacher or police officer would ask what two kids were doing by themselves, but even as the words left their mouths, a sudden electricity would light their eyes, and they'd turn and wander off, convinced by whatever truth they'd heard. After the first year of living alone, Chappelle visited us. I'd never heard of him leaving his shack, but there he was, sitting on our front porch. He asked me questions about my education, on science and math, on biology and physics. He seemed fascinated by the science I was learning and urged me to study even harder. Such amazing things, he said, these explanations of your world. Happy at the praise, I pointed to the stars above us. Maybe I'll be an astronaut, I said. Go to the moon, see what's up there. And that's how marvelous ideas are always born, Chappelle said. Before he left, he nodded at Diane, who shook with relief at his approval. And so life went, with me studying as hard as I could, taught even more by Diane. At some point, she stopped going to her own classes, instead spending hours in the library putting together lessons and tests so I could learn all there was to know. At twelve, I aced calculus, at fifteen, physics— and biology, and every summer Chappelle would walk to our house and quiz me and pronounce me good for another year. While I was proud of my learning, I never forgot how much my sister sacrificed for me. Late at night, when I was supposed to be asleep, I'd often see her on our porch, listening to Mom's little transistor radio and staring sadly at the sky. I graduated from high school at the top of my class. Diane was so proud, we discovered extra money in our cubbyhole, so Diane announced we'd rent a cap and gown for my graduation. But I couldn't have something for myself and forget my strong, strong sister. So, when I went to town, I convinced the store owner to rent me a slightly frayed cap and gown at half price. With the savings, I bought my sister a new radio. I'd never seen her so happy as when I handed her that gift and we sat on our porch all night long, listening to blues and jazz and so many other musics playing around our little world. To our surprise, Chappelle announced he'd attend my graduation. Diane and I drove him in our boat across the bay, where he walked through town as if here to destroy the entire place. Men and women and children, both black and white, avoided his eyes and turned away, afraid of something they couldn't describe. When we reached the high school gymnasium, he marched to the front row and said in his gravel voice for the mayor and his wife to vacate their seats. That pompous white man looked startled. I doubt a black man had ever ordered him around. But when the mayor tried to say something, his tongue tied and his face paled. He grabbed his wife's hand and led her away, apologizing to Chappelle as he went. I was impressed. Diane, though, didn't seem to care. She held the new radio I'd given her and smiled a weak smile. Chappelle listened carefully to my valedictorian speech, watched me receive my diploma, and nodded 
silently, to himself. I laughed, excited at the future. Diane cried. Be good to yourself, she said later, wiping her eyes. Go where you want. I told her I would. I turned to hug one of my friends. When I turned back, my sister and Chappelle were gone. At first I thought they'd merely stepped away for a moment, but as the minutes and hours ticked off, I knew they were gone, truly gone. Suddenly, understanding more than I should, I ran to a friend's pickup truck and stole his pistol. I then piloted my boat across the bay and ran through the swamps to Chappelle's shack. I found him in that damn leather and wood rocking chair. I aimed the pistol as he laughed, but before I could pull the trigger, a massive raven flew for my eyes. I woke in Apalachicola Bay, floating under a deep star night. I now believed my sister had been dead for years, and that it was up to me alone to make something of myself in this damn world. Looking at the stars as I treaded water, I swore I would. As I tread the path to Chappelle, the ghost wizards and witches abandon their phantom displays, having failed to impress me with either deed or word. I reach Chappelle's shack to find him sitting in that same leather and wood rocker and holding the same carved tooth of a walking stick. His raven sits on the rocker's arm, eyeing me. The summer sun heats the shotgun in my hands so I can barely hold it. Welcome home, Saul, Chappelle says. Before he says more, I shoot him. But even as I do, the raven flies between him and me, absorbing most of the blast. The raven screams and flops onto the porch while Chappelle falls back in his rocking chair. I rack another round into the chamber and slowly approach him. It's your choice, Chappelle gasps, his skinny body shaking. Only a few of the pellets hit his right arm and leg, but he's so old and weak, that's enough to keep him from standing. The raven flops blood and feathers across the porch, but I ignore it. I'd forgotten about her, I say. My sister, you made me forget her. Chappelle nods. That was her choice. She knew what she needed, and that's all I ask of anyone. Simply know what you need to do. I pause. And what do I need to do? Chappelle pulls the wounded raven to him, the bird's high-pitched cries easing as he holds it to his rib-gasping chest. You need to kill me, but before you do, know what I am. I'm science and math and reason. That catches my interest. Seems more likely you're the exact opposite of all that. Indeed, I'm the most powerful wizard of the last thousand years. I destroyed every other wizard and witch on this planet. Not much of a wizard these days, I guess. That storm in the bay, and the sea serpent, and ghosts, they were laughably weak. Anger flashes Chappelle's eyes, and I know the old man still pulses to the pride and arrogance I remember from my childhood. That wasn't to stop you. That was so you'd taste what will happen if you kill me. And there it is. I ease the shotgun barrel from his body and sit beside him. The raven caws softly from the cradle of his hands and chest. Surely your parents told you what the world used to be like, he says, of bowing and scraping to any two-bit sorcerer and magic shaker. 
You think there's bad in the world now? Imagine a world where your enemy could wish you dead and your lover bind you for all eternity. Imagine a world where kings knew who'd one day kill them if they let them live. Imagine a world where the powerful truly are all-powerful. I remember my parents describing such a world. So you, I hold all that back. Within me is all the magic and wonder of a dead age. Because of me, science and math and laws of what you call physics rule this world. While there are still powerful men and women, they now answer to natural forces even they can't control. I remembered Diane and me sitting on our front porch, staring at the bright shine Milky Way while listening to her radio, of her telling me that in this world I could reach the stars. Why do you do this? I ask. Maybe I'm tired of a world where anything was possible with so little effort. Maybe I want to be the only wizard around. All you need know is that if you kill me, all the magic inside me goes back into the world. I remember my dad saying magic lives off the loves and pains of others. I remember the ghost wizards and witches saying spells must occasionally be renewed. I throw the shotgun off the porch, throw the pistol after it, objects of science, of engineering and physics, of me. You did this on purpose, I say. You wanted to know if all this is worth it. Is it? he asks his eyes dancing across the pain and love I feel. I stare at the clouds above us and remember the joy of living a life which dared reach so high. How can I deny others that same life? How can I trap people in a world where magic alone makes you king? It's worth it, I say, and Chappelle smiles the first true smile I've ever seen on his old face. He hugs the raven tight, even as a small sun surrounds the bird. The raven's body heals, and its feathers once again shine to the purple burn I first saw in space. The raven grins, and I still don't know how birds grin as it speaks my name in my sister's lovely voice. From inside the shack, a tinny radio clicks through static and far-off music. I laugh as I take the raven into my hands and whisper to my sister the many, many ways a man of science can rationalize serving a wizard for a few hundred years. There you go. I'll put a link on Jason's site. We've still got an essay to go by, Jason, and another story as well. Like you say, Jason Sanford, you know, he's one of these kind of writers that just hits you with so many kind of quirky and great ideas, but then it's just wrapped in this just... And this is like kind of what all writers want to do, you know, like this kind of a good story. That's that's all you want, isn't it, when you kind of read. You just want a good, exciting story. Jason's got that knack, you know what I mean, of kind of taking these ideas, taking these characters and just making it, just melding it together. Jason, honestly, brilliant writer, y'all. So next up we have our very own Diane with her poetry planet. Diane!
Welcome to Poetry Planet number five. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. I'm very excited about this show. I've always been a huge fan of time travel stories. I've read countless books and short stories with time travel themes, and my favorite episodes in the Star Trek universe have always been those involving the concept of time in some way. Yes, I'm a Trekkie. I've been fascinated by the amount of variations on a theme and the facets of time and time travel that have been revealed by each writer. I've put together a collection of poems on the theme of time travel in which each gives a different twist to the idea of traveling in time, each from a different perspective. Because the theme is so broad and I received so many interesting poems, this will be the first of two episodes on time travel. I hope you enjoy. It seems like people are always traveling through time unprepared. What if you had time to think and plan? What would you take along? Things to Pack for My Trip Through Time by Rachel Swirsky Grandfather's Coin Collection Solid Gold Ingots Strung Onto Belt Army Ration Bars to be Traded for Something Edible Bag of Cowrie Shells Fake Mustache Pancake Makeup Tweezers Razor Kilt, toga, codpiece, loincloth, pantaloons. Tattoos and scarification for the uninitiated kit with sterilized needle. Gonsman's Atlas of World History. Bible, Koran, Vedas. Cliff's Notes to Greek Mythology. Herbal Time, Field Guide to Medicinal Plants. Extensive copy of Family Tree with Direct Ancestors marked in red. First Aid Kit, Antibiotics. Water purifier, 10-pound box of industrial-strength scouring powder. Spare pair of spectacles, condoms, breath mints. 38 handgun with extra clips. Baby's first magical kit, white rabbit not included. Pop rocks to bribe the children. Toothbrushes to undo the damage. Tyrannosaurus Rex saddle. Fireworks. Time capsule, blank notebook, quills, ink. We can go in two directions through time. Well, okay, we can go parallel, too. Grandmaster poet Bruce Boston paints a picture of going backwards through decay and forwards through what we cannot know. Polar Chronologies by Bruce Boston Down Flashing The Dead Weight of History The decaying stash of centuries past, over-ripening on every side, I descend in a conceptualized temporal bathysphere, transparent, to shield myself from decomposition and keep the rust storms from my eyes. Only shambling homunculi, the flesh fleeing from their bones, inhabit this once upon a time. Ghostly, dirt-limbed apparitions who rehearse their passage endlessly with no passion of a human kind. Each instant has its apogee, a present we infest with strife, full with color, rife with sound, before the while of consciousness dies, before electrons in their orbits fail and valences begin to lie. Each fallen second tumbles by, coexistent with the here, the now, a tableau on a sunken stage as time-worn and as timeless and as hushed as winter skies, drowned shadows we invest with life, 
these fable constructs of our minds. Upflashing Through realms of airy possibility, the ether thinning round my craft, and then the craft itself, until I'm only a needle-wide projection quivering back and forth across the bell-shaped curve of future lines where fractals propagate and splay. Where all that could be lies, where visions I will soon forget arrest my thoughts with consequence and orchestrated holocausts transpire, past public gardens ripe with fruit and inescapable dystopias of need. All this and more the log replays, and though I know the voice is mine, my memories have shunned dissent. I cannot hold tomorrow in my head. With random cause and stray effect, the future comes and comes again, in microcosms and in worlds on high. It's graven soon as soon can be, hardwired in our histories, and still I scan unwritten texts, anticipate the flight to next and scope the growth within the seed to feed my time-bound curiosities. Polar Chronologies first appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction, March 1989. I'm pleased to introduce fellow Wisconsinite Sandra Lindau, who is an award-winning poet with the peculiar distinction of having more Reisling nominations without a win than any other speculative poet. She has six poetry collections published, the most recent being Touched by the Gods, published by Sam's Dot in the fall of 2008. For over 20 years, she has served as West Central Regional Vice President for the Wisconsin Fellowship of Poets. A popular trope in speculative fiction these days is that of alternate or parallel universes. Here's a little field guide. An Introduction to Alternate Universes, Theory and Practice by Sandra Lindau Our universe is just one among very many bubble universes, all popping out of the general medium of the Big Bang like bubbles forming in a glass of beer. Somewhere, perhaps, there are many universes more or less like ours, some very similar to and others radically different from the universe we call home. Quote by John G. Kramer other universes, too, in Analog, November 1984. 1. Universal Soup Inside the dark cauldron, universes bubble, each bubble emerging, breaking, becoming twinned, double-double toil and trouble when life begins within. 2. Universal Tree a time tree of universes, rooted in Yggdrasil, formed by branching possibilities, the crotch of each branch, a crisis where time splits, heralded by the crow. What if... 3. Dream Door A microcosm of macro-universes, wood of wood, its lintel is a shibboleth, a handle the size of a sonnet, opens to a dreamer's kiss. 4. What if, somewhere onions dream, whales sing oratorio, Elvis lives? Universes not yet conceived quicken behind the mind's eye, providing magic starship rides into alternate possibilities. But getting home is tricky. 5. The glass is cold. 
I take a sip. Newcomer to Poetry Planet, but hardly a newcomer or an unknown in the realm of science fiction poetry, is G.O. Clark. His writing has been published in Asimov's Science Fiction, Tailbones Magazine, Strange Horizons, A Sea of Alone, Poems for Alfred Hitchcock, Tales of the Talisman, and many other publications. He's the author of nine poetry collections, the most recent, Shroud of Night, 2011, and a fiction collection, The Saucer Under My Bed and Other Stories, 2011. He won the Asimov's Reader's Award for Poetry in 2001 and has been a repeat Reisling and Stoker Award nominee. He's retired and lives in Davis, California. Motivation to time travel is an important aspect in most stories. Why do some wish to go forward and others go back? Aren't we all already time travelers of sorts? Mr. Clark ruminates in Looking to the Past. Some travelers hands-off, committed, go forward in time, while the majority go back. Like the researcher who travels back to the Jurassic to record the mating calls of dinosaurs. Like the Hollywood costume designer looking for authenticity in wardrobes destined for the screen. Like the genealogist, data pad in hand, fleshing out the living branches of his client's family tree. Like all the scientists, historians, novelists, poets, and past-life curious, each one going back in time to better define the present and to prepare for the future, fragile as that may prove to be. Another new voice on Poetry Planet is our next poet, G.E. Schwartz. He was born in 1958 in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, and he currently lives in upstate New York. He is a founding member of the performance ensemble Solomon's Ramada and is the author of two poetry collections, Only Others Are, Poems, and Living in Tongues, Poems. The next two brief poems explore, first, time travel as an escape mechanism, and next, how in traveling through time as a course of our lives, we remain ignorant of the future. Intermediary Passing through all the stages of this world becomes what we make as a way of survival here. We couldn't live with the real world the way in real time it destroys whatever we make. Centering The science of how we make our way across the span of time is grand. It deals with what we know. Our mystics always knew, and charlatans will always claim secret knowledge. All knowing falls away in the rush. Still, our centering is both propulsion for our going and our ignorance. This being Michael R. Fosberg's first time on Poetry Planet, he also gets a bit of an introduction. This is what he submitted. Michael R. Fosberg was hatched from a batch of pulsing purple goo. He coalesced into a book nerd with a passion for craft beer, music, reading, and writing, and always learning. He spends his days wishing for autumn, and when autumn arrives, wishing it would never end. He lives in Florida with three cats, a dog, and a wonderful woman. 
I say, in addition, I discovered that he has been nominated in the past for the Pushcart Prize and the Reisling Award, and his work has appeared in many publications. A Google search will suffice. Ilo Tempere by Michael Fosberg You wouldn't have known him as Messiah at that time, unwashed and frail, squalling in the dung-smelling dim of a decrepit manger. The holy books never tell you how the mother smiled and died in her own congealing blood, how the blue-clad stranger watching from above assumed flesh to soothe the weeping husband. Returning through the ages in a flash of heat and light, I pause at the singularity's window to recall that fabled moment, a child hungry and bewildered, reaching for his tranquil mother's hand, a silent stranger's sucker, starlight dancing in boundless eyes. O holy night, indeed! This poem by Starship Sofa and Poetry Planet veteran poet Laurel Winter ran in Oral Delights, episode number 29. By virtue of its brilliance and its appropriateness, I'd like to run it by you again. Talking about our time-traveling experience in relation to our lives in the present sure does make for complicated sentences. Time Travel Verb Tenses by Laurel Winter You remind me of yourself at an age you haven't reached yet, a time when you're comfortably old, when you've cultivated fine wrinkles and some softening pounds. You remind me of the person you're going to be someday, whiter hair and spottier skin, and a sense of how much you matter to the functioning of the universe, which is, of course, for all of us, not very much. You remind me of the person I fell in love with last week, I'm going to fall in love with 37 years from now. You remind me that it's dangerous to go back and meet someone you love before you met them, because you remind me too much of yourself. And that'd be all for this first of two installments on time travel. I hope you enjoyed. Next time, we'll hear some poetry on the disastrous effects of changing the course of time, the grandfather paradox, the boredom that easy, everyday time travel could create, and an adventure poem. Please head over to the Starship Sofa website to find links to the poet's websites and whatnot. They appreciate your interest and support. The third issue of Eye to the Telescope, the Science Fiction Poetry Association's online magazine, this time on the theme of persona poetry, has gone live. This notice is definitely not for Tony, but an article about zombie poetry entitled What Rhymes with Undead? Some Poets Know recently ran in the New York Times. Another fun article, Rhyme and Reason, the Victorian Poet Scientists, can be found in the New Scientist magazine. Starline, the Science Fiction Poetry Association's quarterly journal, is now available for non-members to subscribe to. Subscription information can be found on the association's website. And this is me, signing out, until our next visit to Poetry Planet. And there you go. 
time, you know what I mean, Ti- Diane, time travel. I think it's one of my, it is, it's one of my favourite tropes of science fiction as well. So thank you so much. I've put in all the links, or actually I put the link in the Diane site. If you want to just pop over there and see all the kind of links that are on there, what Diane's talked about are on Diane's site. So do pop over there. And if you're interested in time travel, we have that webinar that we did last year as well on time travel. And there was Connie Willis, Ted Chang, and Amy H. Sturgis, who all talked about time travel. You'll find that in the Holodeck Workshops part of Starship Sofa. So next up is the little essay Jason wrote for his introduction to his collection of short stories, Never Never Stories. This is entitled An Exploration of Archaeology and Fantasy. Jason. To understand the importance of fantasy... No, there are stories which only appear while doing archaeology in the August heat of Alabama. Stories you only taste when the burning air drips sweat off your forehead in consistent, even drops. Tales which only arise in symmetry to the decaying scent of new-dug clays. To understand the importance of fantasy, join me almost two decades ago as I excavate a burial in an ancient village near the Tallapoosa River. I'm practicing what's called salvage archaeology. A rock quarry is destroying this archaeology site because there is gravel below the soil, and gravel sells for a million dollars per square acre. There will not be time to excavate much of what lays below. When the bulldozers and tractors pass over unexcavated ground, we archaeologists follow behind looking for broken pots and smashed bottles and bones pounded to dust. Every time I see these destroyed remnants of people's lives, scooped away or crushed because they are worth less than gravel, I want to scream. On this particular day so long ago, I'm the only archaeologist at the site. I'm also excavating a burial. Even though I've worked on dozens of graves in my time, this one slams my emotions. I step away every few minutes to cry, telling myself the isolation is getting to me. But the truth is the tears come because I'm excavating the burial of a young child. It's difficult to excavate the graves of children. With adults, you figure the bones you uncover belong to someone who lived a complete life. But with children, you know this didn't happen. No matter how much these kids were loved or how many people they touched, they still died with a lifetime ahead of them. In a perfect world, every child would grow up and embrace a long, healthy future. But that's not how life goes. This child's grave is very well preserved. The bones are mostly intact, and there are a thousand beads scattered throughout the burial, indicating the child was lovingly placed on an elaborate blanket or cloth. However, what truly shakes my emotions is the limestone discoidal I uncover in the child's hand. A discoidal is a round toy the size of your palm. It's flat on both sides and slanted on the edge. A child would have rolled the stone toy across the ground, making the discoidal turn in a large circle as kids played games only kids can play. Imagine your favorite toy growing up. Imagine the favorite toys of your brothers and sisters and cousins and friends. As a child, these toys were more than toys. They were life itself. The child before me likely loved this toy discoidal as much as I loved the toys of my own youth. And when the child died, his or her parents lovingly placed the discoidal in their child's hand. 
Of course, in the harsh glare of reality's spotlight, I can't prove this is exactly how everything happened. The bones before me are so decayed, I can't even say whether this child was a boy or a girl. All I have is the evidence of this burial and where that evidence takes me. Beyond that, I must dream. I must fantasize. For several millennia, people lived on this site, but within a few years, little will remain because of the gravel quarry. If you didn't know what truly lay below this ground, you could even be forgiven for thinking the gravel is all that matters. In the same way, fantasies reside within us. Like the gravel below this burial, our fantasies of how life might have been and how it could still be support all our dreams and ideals. Fantasies are similar to archaeology, revealing truth once the surface has been removed. Everything created leaves its mark on humanity's ground. The dark outlines of births and burials, the foundations of homes and dreams long gone, the despair and hope and trials we all experience. Fantasy is the exploration of what rests below. Throughout human history, in every culture and time, there have been fantasies whose excavations dug deep into human life. The Epic of Gilgamesh, the Odyssey, the Ramayana, One Thousand and One Nights, along with countless other fantasies from the Arthurian legends to tall tales told around campfires to the latest Hollywood blockbusters. Fantasies such as these both revealed the buried pillars of our world and became the new supports of our ever-changing lives. It's been almost 20 years since I excavated that child's burial, yet the awe and sadness I felt that day will never leave me. I wish I could travel back in time to meet that child, to be there as the child's family and friends mourned, to say that their child will never be forgotten. But I'm a bad liar, so maybe it's good time only flows forward. After all, we forget so many things each and every day. I'm sure forgetting is the only way the people who own that gravel quarry could rationalize destroying the history of a people. Time carries away the old lands we knew as surely as a quarry carries away gravel piece by tiny piece. All that remains are the people who live on through us and the stories we tell. It doesn't matter that life may not have happened exactly as our fantasies spin them. Instead, what matters is that we dream of what could have been and what might one day be. What matters is that we carry humanity's fantasies forward, long after everyone who originally told those stories is gone and forgotten by all. Jason, thank you very much. It's hard to kind of keep on going on, just like what, what I kind of think of Jason's writing. Do you know what I mean? He is, I guess this is why everyone kind of turns to the, you know, this genre when it is as exciting as what kind of Jason makes it. And this story as well, what we're about to play, again, f fantastic. And as I say, this one came out in, you know, this one came from Interzone, but it also came out in, you know, volume, volume two of Starships Over Stories, Into the Depths of Illuminated Seas. This one's narrated by Rita DiBello. Rita has been a lawyer and primary school teacher, but much prefers her current role, she says, at stay-at-home mum, who also reads and announces at the radio for the print handicapped in Sydney. She lives there with her equally SF mad husband and two daughters. And Rita's just she just recently moved and said she's just now built up a whole new studio as well, so we're looking forward to getting some more work off Rita. Rita, fantastic. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present 
Into the Depths of Illuminated Seas by Jason Sanford The names of dying sailors washed across Amber Tollester in a sea of rainbow-lit letters. When the ships of Winspur languished in port during the doldrums of summer, the names lay cold, blue and exhausted on her skin. When autumn's gales churned the seas to crash and foam, the names burned red in response. And when a sailor on any of Winspur's ships was washed away or crushed by tackle or drowned in the endless depths, Amber screamed as that sailor's white-hot name burned into her body, leaving the other names to wonder which would fall next for the sea-slippery embrace. No one in Winspur could explain Amber's fate. The port's more pious citizens proclaimed Amber a warning to sinners that life was short and damnation eternal. The less pious whispered that Amber paid for the sins of her parents, who had been shopkeeps until their untimely deaths a decade before. Depending on the tale, Amber's mother had either spurned a sailor's true love, cheating on him even as he drowned in a great hurricane, or Amber's father had jumped ship at the last minute. For want of a full crew, his ship was lost. Once every month, Amber walked to the church rectory, where she disrobed in front of Mrs. Andercoost, the town's oldest widow. Mrs. Andercoost wrote down the names on Amber's skin, compared those names with previous lists, and noted with sadness any missing names. Ship owners and captains used the widow's lists to balance their crews, never wanting too many named sailors on one ship. And woe to any sailor who asked for his true love's hand in marriage without first confessing that he was among the named. And so Amber Tullester grew to hate her life. She covered herself in long dresses and gloves and prayed every day for the names to disappear. More than once she walked to the harbour breakwater and considered jumping into the churning ocean waves. All that stopped her was the ironic knowledge that, without being named on her skin, she wasn't fated to die at sea. Shortly after Amber turned 25, a new name appeared on her skin, David Saar. Mrs. Andercoos discovered the name glowing in cold blue light across the middle of Amber's back. As Amber pulled her clothes back on, shivering from the rectory's chilly draughts, Mrs. Andercoost cackled about the discovery. No David Saar has been born in the last month. Mrs. Andercoost said, leafing through the church's baptismal record, and the only David Tsar I remember left Winspur when he was a child. Amber buttoned the front of her dress, smiling as the name of Billy Martin swam across her right breast. As a teenager, she'd often dreamed of Billy caressing her breasts, although not in this manner. She watched Billy's name for another moment until a cough from Mrs. Andercoost brought her back to the issue at hand. Perhaps this David Tsar changed his name, Amber suggested. Doesn't work like that. Change their name all they want. If they're on your skin, the sea will take them. Amber frowned. While she understood the fervour the widow devoted to the names, like most widows in the town, Mrs. Andercoost had lost her husband to the sea. Amber hated it when Mrs. Andercoost saw her as nothing but an empty canvas for the sailors' deaths. Still, Amber figured Mrs. Andercoost's lists helped people, so she bit her tongue to keep from saying anything nasty. When Amber left the rectory, she walked the long way home, enjoying the cool spring breeze blowing from the bay and the morning sunshine bouncing off damp cobblestones and slate-roofed buildings. Outside a boutique, Amber stopped and gazed longingly at a collection of popular sundresses newly arrived from London. Amber glanced at her reflection in the window, at the hideous brown of her old maid's dress, at the long sleeves and gloves she wore to hide the names. She wished she could wear sundresses without attracting attention. With a sigh, she turned to walk on. However, a middle-aged woman blocked the sidewalk. When Amber tried to step around her, 
the woman spat at her feet. With a start, Amber recognised the woman as the mother of Clyde Oldman, who drowned last year. Amber walked away, but the woman followed her. You're a vile, evil thing, the woman yelled. You should have drowned with your parents. Before Amber could respond, the woman's husband raced over and grabbed his wife's arm. My apologies, Miss Tollester, he said, hustling his wife away. She doesn't mean anything by it. But his abrupt tone told Amber the husband agreed with his wife. Once the woman was gone, Amber noticed the passers-by who had paused to watch the encounter. What are you looking at? she screamed. Then, nearly in tears, Amber ran back to her store, wondering if fate had purposely left her face free of names so everyone could easily see how much she hated her life. That night, an unseasonably powerful storm blew in from the sea. From Amber's apartment above her store, she watched the waves pound the harbour's breakwater. But while the names on her body crashed in tune with the gale, none burned red. Amber always felt the deaths of sailors minutes or hours in advance as their names grew hotter and hotter and brighter and brighter. For now, all the names merely warmed her skin, meaning their deaths were far in the future. Amber climbed into bed and fell asleep, happy there'd be no deaths on her conscience tonight. The next day, as Amber swept broken branches and smashed slate fragments from the front of her store, she heard people yelling at the docks. Amber walked over to find the simply a 1,000-ton sailing trawler limping into port. One of the trawler's masts was broken and the ship listed heavily to port. The at the docks parted when they saw Amber, some people happy to see her, others appalled. Oh, Miss Tollester, Miss Tollester! A sailor on board yelled when the trawler reached the piers. Without waiting for the gangplank, he jumped to the dock and fell at Amber's feet. Bless you, Miss Tollester. When that storm hit, I would have lost faith except my best mate Bondor wasn't on your skin. I stayed close to him and sure enough, here I am, safe and sound. Amber didn't know what to say. The sailor at her feet was Miles O'Shaughnessy, who was among the named. And she knew Jack Bondor. He'd gone to school with her and wasn't named. As more sailors walked off the Simply, they crowded around Amber, adding their praise and touching her like a sacred totem. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
As always, Amber marvelled at this behaviour. Every sailor who survived a storm or accident praised her. If they weren't named on her body, that was why they survived. If they were named, they survived because their time had yet to come. Living sailors loved Amber, while the dead voiced few complaints. Happy the sailors had survived, Amber tried to leave, but Miles stopped her. My lady, we'll have a gift for you, he said. He and the other sailors led Amber to the gangplank, where a tall sailor Amber didn't know was carried to the dock on a stretcher. At first, Amber thought the gift was behind the unconscious sailor, but she realised they meant the sailor himself. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand, Amber stammered. Miles O'Shaughnessy frowned. Isn't he a friend of yours? He's been delirious since we found him floating in a half-sunk lifeboat. Keeps muttering your name over and over. Amber stared at the unconscious sailor's peaceful face. She'd never seen this man before. But before she could say so, Miles handed Amber a tiny silver and glass frame. He had that in his pocket, Miles said. Amber glanced at the tiny picture, which fit easily in her gloved hand. The daguerreotype showed Amber standing on the bow of a ship. Amber tried to convince herself that the picture merely showed another woman who resembled her, but then she turned it over. There, etched into the silver backing, were the words, To Amber Tolester, with eternal love, David Saar. As Amber watched the unconscious sailor being carried to the port's small hospital, a shiver rocked the names flowing her skin. David Saar. That was the new name on her body. That night, Amber couldn't sleep. She stared at the daguerreotype over and over, trying to tease details from the black and white image. In the picture, Amber wore pants and a short-sleeved shirt and stood on the deck of a small sailing cutter. Behind her, a man dangled by his neck from a rope slung over the yardarm, his face swollen and blurry. Amber had heard of captains hanging mutineers and pirates like that, but such a deed hadn't been done in decades. Another strange thing about the daguerreotype, aside from the hanged man and the fact that Amber had never taken the picture, was that no names were visible on her bare arms. Even more shocking were the words from David Sarr expressing his eternal love. Amber wanted to race to the hospital and force this stranger to explain why he dared state his love for someone he'd never met. She felt both violated and excited by Sarr's words. The next day she visited the hospital to confront this David Sarr. To her surprise, two constables stood outside his door. May I help you, Miss Tollister? The older constable, a giant man named Samuels, asked. Constable Samuels had never liked Amber because he was named on her body, even though he wasn't a sailor. I want to see David Saar. Samuels glanced at the other constable, who was Billy Martin, the boy she'd had a crush on back in school. They'd even sneaked a kiss once during a family beach trip. But then Amber's parents died and Billy, along with the rest of Winspur, learned what the names on her body meant. Since then, Billy hadn't given her more than a passing glance. Why would you wish to see our dear Mr. Saar? Constable Samuels asked. One of the Simply Sailors said Saar spoke my name when they found him. Constable Samuels' mouth opened in shock. Wait, is Saar named on your skin? Yes. Billy grabbed Samuels' arm. Does that mean he'll escape? Billy asked. How can he die at sea when he's to hang? Constable Samuels shook his head, unsure himself. What did he do? Amber asked. He's a wrecker, Samuels said. The receiver of wrecks has a warrant on him for setting up false lights along rocky coasts and luring ships to their doom. But there's also rumour he's into piracy, but we've no evidence of that. 
but wrecking's enough to hang for. Of course, if he's to die at sea, I don't know what that means about him taking to a rope any time soon. Maybe it means he's innocent, Amber suggested. Samuels laughed, obviously not believing her, and told Amber she couldn't see Mr. Sarr. Amber tried to catch Billy's eye, but he refused to look at her. Angry and dejected, she pushed Billy away and stormed out of the hospital. After leaving the hospital, Amber visited Richard Beard, a long-time friend of her parents who ran a photography studio only a few blocks from Amber's store. When she showed Beard the daguerreotype, he was instantly fascinated. A fine specimen, he said, shifting the silver-backed glass frame in his hands. Macabre, but a fine specimen. Really? The hanged man's face is blurry. Richard Beard shook his head and led Amber to the back wall of his studio. Hundreds of photographs hung there, a mix of daguerreotypes, tintypes and the new albumin prints, which had become trendy of late because their small carte de viste prints were so cheap. Almost all the photos were of sailors and their wives and girlfriends, and many of the sailors' portraits were framed in black. The problem with daguerreotypes is exposures take almost a minute, Beard said. Creating a picture outside is dicey, more so on a ship. The fact that only the man's face blurred indicates either extreme luck or skill on the photographer's part. For myself, I only use the Daguerre process for landscapes or studio portraits, and for portraits I require a back brace to hold the subject still. Then why take such a picture? Well, a properly sealed daguerreotype can last forever, which is more than I can say about those little carte de viste prints everyone wants these days. Before Amber left, she asked if it was possible to manipulate a daguerreotype's image. Richard Beard again glanced at the daguerreotype, obviously seeing that Amber's skin there was free of the names. He shook his head. The image is too delicate. That's why we seal them in glass. The faintest touch destroys them. Amber thanked the man and returned to her shop, still brooding over both the daguerreotype and David Saar. For the next few days, Amber tried over and over to see David Saar, only to have Samuels and Billy continually stop her. From the hospital nurses, Amber learned that Saar was in a fever-induced delirium, but expected to recover. Of course, he would then hang for his crimes. But as the nurses said, that was a matter between Saar and his God, not them. Amber also learned more about this David Saar. His ancestors had lived in Winspur for hundreds of years, always working as sailors. When Saar was ten, his father died at sea. Shortly after, Saar and his mother moved away. In the four decades since, no one in Winspur heard anything about Saar until reports reached constables that he was wrecking ships. On the fifth day after the simply reached port, the winds picked up, the barometer fell, and a light rain pattered across the roof tiles. By evening, the winds howled as fat drops of rain wrapped on the windows. Amber was undressing for bed when two names began burning in red fire across her breasts. Constable Samuels and Billy. Amber ran to her balcony window and stared at the harbour. Because of the building storm, most ships had come in early. Why would Samuels and Billy try to sail on a night like this? Uncertain but wanting to warn the two men, Amber grabbed her raincoat and ran to the harbour. She found the harbour deserted, even the night watchman having retreated in the face of the storm. The ships jumped and splashed alongside the slick docks. Beyond the edge of the harbour, Amber saw massive waves crashing on the breakwater. Then she heard a gunshot. Amber crept warily toward the sound and found Constable Samuels and David Saar wrestling on the main pier beside a mid-sized cutter. 
Samuels had the size advantage and straddled Sar, pounding the sailor's face over and over with his large fists. Unsure what to do, Amber stepped back and tripped over a body. Billy sprawled beside a fish-cleaning table. He reached for her as blood poured from a gunshot wound to his head. Amber pressed her hand over the wound. Billy gripped her arm for a moment before passing out. Amber looked up to see Constable Samuels tying Sar's hands with rope, the peaceful face Sar had shown while unconscious replaced with lines of hate and rage. "'How's Billy?' Constable Samuels yelled over the wind. "'Still breathing,' she said. "'I think the bullet only grazed his skull.' Samuels finished tying Sar's hand together, kicked the captive man and picked up a fallen eight-barrel pepper box pistol. Aiming the pistol at Sar, Samuels walked over to examine his wounded partner. Suddenly a large wave slammed into the pier, knocking Amber and Samuels over and washing Billy into the waters below. Amber scrambled to the edge of the pier and grabbed Billy's shirt just as he went under. She felt his name burning white hot on her skin as the sea screamed to take him from her. Amber yelled for Samuels to help, but when she glanced back, she saw Sar had used the confusion to fight back. The wrecker straddled the constable, Sar's bound hand slamming Samuels' head into a piling. The constable moaned as Sar shoved him into the surging waters below, causing Samuel's name to spark fire through Amber's shirt and raincoat. But she ignored the pain, desperate not to lose her grip on Billy. Help me, she yelled at Sar. I can't pull him up by myself. Sar glanced at the waves and shook his head. He picked up Samuel's pistol, holding it between his still-bound hands. He told Amber to let go of Billy and come with him. What? We're fated to be together. Let go of him. Amber glared at Sar. No! Sar shook his head angrily and pointed the pistol at Amber. She glanced at Billy, who was now awake from the shock of the surging sea. He poured in fear at the pier, but was too weak to pull himself up. She didn't need to feel Billy's burning name to know he was begging her not to let him die. Last chance, Sar said. No. To Amber's surprise, Sar didn't pull the trigger. Instead, he smiled before smashing her across the head with the butt of the pistol. Amber drifted in and out of consciousness, unsure if she was dreaming or awake. She dimly remembered Sar jumping into a small cutter tied to the dock and sailing into the gale force winds. She remembered Samuel's name burning deep into her body as the constable drowned. But where she expected to feel the fire of Billy's death, she instead felt a gentle kiss like the one they'd shared so long ago during that ill-fated beach trip. She cried at the memory, wishing she hadn't gone on the damn trip. A week earlier, she turned 16 and discovered her body crawling with names, including those of her parents. But instead of telling anyone, she'd covered herself in long robes and stayed in her room, pretending to be sick. Her parents worried about her, but Amber was too ashamed to tell them the truth, fearing they'd think her possessed by some devil. Then one morning, her mother knocked on her bedroom door. Honey, her mother said with a conspirator's smirk, Billy's downstairs. He and his mother have invited us on a beach trip. Amber knew her mother had set this up, but she didn't want to turn Billy down. She was also amazed her mother was willing to go to the beach. Amber's mum had always been deathly afraid of the sea. So Amber and her parents joined the Martins at the beach. Amber wore her longest swimming dress, full-length sleeves and gloves, and so much body powder she continually fought back sneezes. They ate a picnic lunch, searched for seashells, and had a wonderful time. 
Amber even overheard Mrs. Martin saying how impressed she was with Amber for being so modestly dressed. As the sun neared the horizon, Amber's father walked up to his waist in the surf. He teased Amber's mother, asking her to join him, but she merely shook her head and laughed nervously as Mrs. Martin stood beside her. With their parents distracted, Billy reached for Amber's gloved hand and kissed her on the cheek. Amber blushed and turned her lips to Billy, but before they could kiss again, Amber's mother screamed. She turned to see her father struggling in the surf against a powerful rip current which hadn't been there moments before. He'd already been pulled a dozen yards out to sea. Amber started to run toward him but doubled over as pain burned her body. When she looked up, she saw her mother, despite her fear of the water, running into the sea. When she reached Amber's father, the burning on Amber's skin lessened for a moment, but then they both disappeared beneath the waves and their names burned through Amber's clothes, scorching both her body and soul. When the pain finally stopped, Amber looked up to see Billy and his mother staring at her in shock, their eyes reading the letters now singed across Amber's clothes. Billy reached for her, but his mother stopped him, and Amber noticed Billy didn't resist very hard. And when Billy's mother asked if her son's name was also on Amber's body, all Amber could do was nod. A fisherman found her parents' bodies the next day, their arms locked in a stiff hug. Amber cried for months over that beach trip, wishing she'd ignored Billy and told her parents about the names, wishing she'd known beforehand what the names meant, wishing she could be as brave as her mother. Amber dreamed all through the storm and woke the next morning in the hospital, warm sunlight flooding her room as the curtains rippled to the gentle sea breeze. Two doctors and a nurse stood beside her, fussing over the lump on her head as if this was the most important wound they'd ever attended. Amber soon learned why they were so concerned. She was a hero. Several townsfolk had heard the gunshots. When they reached the pier, they found Amber lying unconscious beside Billy. They also saw Sar sailing away, his tiny cutter tacking left and right directly into the wind. Even though the doctors told Amber to stay in bed, she couldn't sit still when she heard Billy was alive. She pushed everyone out of her room and closed the door, searching her body for Billy's name. He was gone. She'd changed his fate. That afternoon, Amber visited Billy in his hospital room. Billy's head was bandaged, but the bullet had simply grazed his head and the doctor said he'd recover. Billy smiled weakly and thanked her. Amber wasn't sure how she'd managed to pull Billy out of the water after Sar hit her in the head, but she was glad he'd survived. Feeling daring, she reached out to hold Billy's hand. Because she wore a hospital gown, the sailors' names crawled down her bare arms and mingled around their interlocked hands, but Billy pretended not to notice and simply smiled. Amber soon recovered enough to leave the hospital. To her surprise, a large crowd greeted her outside her dry goods store. Several women who'd lost their husbands and sons to the sea hugged her, including the old woman who'd spit at her a few weeks back. Amber stammered her thanks and tried not to look shocked. In the weeks that followed, people continued to treat her with, if not outright kindness, at least courtesy. While shoppers at her dry goods store still stared at the few bits of flesh Amber couldn't keep covered, no one glared with hostility. Everyone knew Amber had saved Billy's life. Better yet, Mrs. Andercoost confirmed Billy's name was no longer on Amber's skin, giving hope to the families of other named sailors that perhaps they too could dodge fate. When Billy was released from the hospital, 
Amber walked him home. They talked of little things, how nice the breeze felt, how the clouds scudded so quietly across the sky. When they reached Billy's home, he kissed her gently on the cheek. Amber walked in a happy daze all the way back to her shop. Soon, Amber began seeing Billy Martin on a regular basis. Amber still didn't care for Billy's mother. She'd never forgotten the hatred on the woman's face when she learned Billy was named on Amber's skin. However, Billy's mother now acted like Amber was the finest lady on earth and invited Amber to every Sunday dinner. Afterward, Amber and Billy took long walks along the harbour where sailors waved at the young couple. During one of their walks, they stopped at an ice lolly vendor. As they sat on a park bench eating bites of cherry ice, Billy asked Amber what she wanted to do with her life. I want to spend the rest of my life in a dry goods store, she said sarcastically. Billy laughed. Seriously, he said. Amber smiled. I'm not sure. All I've ever truly wanted is for the names to leave my body. She held up her hands so he could see the names flowing around her fingers. For a moment, Amber was afraid she'd been too honest. What about you? She quickly asked. I want to do something important, something that really matters, solve the big crime, catch some infamous murderer, save someone's life. Amber started to ask why Billy hadn't tried to save her father's life all those years ago, but remembered how his mother had held Billy back, not wanting to risk his death in the sea. As if Billy knew what she was thinking, he coughed and changed the subject. Isn't there anything else you've longed for? He asked. I would say to fall in love, but that wish has come true. Billy squeezed her hand gently and smiled. That spring was the best of Amber's life. She and Billy spent all their free time together. Even better, not a single sailor in Winspur died, so Amber's skin was still and quiet. Then the killing started. Amber felt the first killing on a bright Sunday morning when a name suddenly disappeared from her skin. However, instead of first burning white hot, the name simply vanished with a sensuous kiss. Amber was still trying to figure out what had happened when another name vanished with a kiss, followed by a third and fourth. Amber remembered how Billy's name disappeared from her body with the same sensation and hoped this meant the men were no longer fated to die at sea. However, she was unsure, so she closed her store and hurried to tell Mrs. Andercoost. They're all sailing on the Pendercast, she said. Left yesterday for a week-long fishing trip to the Shoals. Does this mean they're safe, like Billy? Mrs. Andercoost shook her head. I don't know. Perhaps we should tell the captains who are still in port. Outbound ships can keep an eye out for the Pendercast and see what happened to the sailors. Amber nodded, figuring they wouldn't know until next week. But to her surprise, the following day the Pendercast sailed into harbour. News crews spread that they'd been attacked by pirates who'd killed four members of the crew. That night, Billy and the Pendercast's captain stopped by to see Amber. Captain Zeller took off his hat and bowed to Amber before they sat down at her dining room table. We thought the ship needed help, Captain Zeller said. Just floating over the shoals, no cloth up except one shredded staysail. The crew waved at us, so we pulled alongside. That's when they attacked. Seven of them, including David Sarr, all armed with brown best muskets and sabres. We didn't stand a chance. Amber felt sick. After we were tied up, Sarr walked down the line asking each of my men his name. He then shot four of them in the back of the head. 
Captain Zeller held his hat to his chest and shook his head, tears tumbling out of his eyes. Billy thanked him for coming and showed him to the door. When he returned, he told Amber that Captain Zeller had recognised the other men in Sar's crew. They're all named sailors, Billy said. Every one of them. How did Sar get Mrs. Anderkust's list? I don't know, but he left this Captain Zeller. Billy pulled a tiny glass daguerreotype out of his coat pocket. The picture was similar to the one she'd seen before, except Amber was now the one hanging by the neck from the mast. The names of sailors still burned across her skin, and the face of the man with her on the tiny cutter wasn't blurry. He was crisp and clear, and definitely David Saar. Etched into the silver backing of this frame were the words, We died for Amber Tollester. Amber shivered. I have another one of these, she said. When she showed it to Billy, he shook his head in puzzlement. I don't understand, Billy muttered as he looked at the first daguerreotype. How did the names on your skin disappear? I don't know. I asked Richard Beard if it's possible to alter a daguerreotype. He said no. Billy stared closely at the two daguerreotypes. So you've never taken these pictures? No. And you don't know, sir? No. I first saw him when he was carried off the Simply. She paused, wishing she'd shown her daguerreotype to Billy months ago, because it now looked like she'd been hiding it from him. But there is something I need to tell you. The night I pulled you from the sea, Sar said he and I were fated to be together. When I refused to let you drown and go with Sar, he knocked me out. You didn't save me. What? I mean, you did save me by grabbing me after that wave hit, but when Sar knocked you out, I fell back into the sea. Sar's the one who pulled me back out. Ever since, I've been trying to figure out why. Maybe he thought he was helping you. Billy shrugged as if he didn't understand his own line of reasoning. When Billy left, he kissed Amber warmly on the cheek and said he'd take care of everything. But enough doubt existed in his eyes for Amber to remember the first time they'd kissed and how he'd simply disappeared from her life after being named. As the door closed, she hurled all the curses she knew at David Sarr. Over the next few months, David Sarr and his pirates struck three more times. The first time they attacked like before, waiting until a ship approached and executing every named sailor. After that, none of Winspur's fleet would go near unknown ships, so Sar attacked at night without warning. He and his pirates overran the ships and killed anyone who stood up to them. Sar would then find each named survivor and kill them too. Sar always left behind one of two daguerreotypes of Amber. In the first, Amber stood at the helm of a ship, Saar dead and hanging from the mast. In the other, he piloted the ship, while she hung dead. The Navy sent a frigate to patrol the waters, but found no sign of Saar. Billy also rode on several of Winsburg's fishing vessels, hoping Saar would strike, but again, no such luck. Finally, the owners of Winsburg's ships stopped hiring named sailors. The night the policy was announced, someone threw a burning brand through the front window of Amber's store. She doused the fire before it spread. In the morning, she hammered wood across the broken window while her neighbours glared angrily at her. She was still cleaning up when Billy stopped by. Are we having dinner tomorrow at your mother's house? Amber asked. The previous week's Sunday dinner had been extremely awkward. The kindness Billy's mother had shown her was now gone and Amber knew the attack on her store wouldn't help matters. Perhaps we shouldn't, Billy said. 
I'd rather enjoy your company than spend our time fighting Mother. How about a picnic in the park? Amber hugged Billy and spent all evening preparing food for the outing. But the next morning, Billy didn't show up. After waiting for several hours, Amber finally barged over to Billy's house, figuring his mother was trying to turn him against her. Instead, she found the woman in tears. He's gone, Billy's mother said, holding a now familiar glass-framed daguerreotype. They took him, and it's all your fault. Amber snatched the picture from the mother's hand. It showed Amber hanging dead, the names burning her arms and neck. On the back were the words, Waiting for you, David Saar. That afternoon, Amber talked with Mrs Anderkust. That night, Amber walked to a popular sailor's bar near the docks where no proper lady would be caught dead. But Amber no longer cared what other people thought of her. When the sailors saw Amber, they glared in silence. Because the fishing fleet was at sea, these men were likely all named and no longer able to be hired. Among them sat Miles O'Shaughnessy. I'm going to find Saar, Amber said. Who's willing? The sailors continued to glare at Amber. She wore work pants and a short-sleeved shirt, their names clearly visible in cold blue light along her arms and neck. What are you talking about, Miss Tollester? Miles asked. No ship will have us, let alone carry the woman Saar's angry at. I have a ship. Mrs. Anderkus gave me permission to take her late husband's trawler, and I'm not looking for volunteers. I'm paying for able-bodied sailors. At the mention of pay, the sailors talked excitedly amongst themselves. Most had known and respected Captain Anderkust, and were impressed his widow would lend Amber his ship. Still, Miles O'Shaughnessy spoke for all of them when he asked Amber what she intended to do if she found Sar. I'm going to kill him. As Amber knew only too well, sailors were a superstitious lot. The thought of sailing with so many cursed men, and worst, with a woman, kept most of them off her ship. It didn't help that Amber had no sea experience. Still, she found eight willing men and hoped they'd be enough. She picked Miles O'Shaughnessy as her first mate, much to his surprise. The two of them then surveyed Mrs. Anderkust's ship. Since her husband's death, the twin mast trawler had lain on a beach near the widow's house. The ship was covered in seagull droppings, badly needed a new coat of paint, and the tack had dry-rotted away. Miles wrote up a list of needed supplies and repairs. It's a long list, he said. Will the bank lend you this much? Doesn't matter. I'm selling my store. If Miles disapproved, he didn't let on. Amber and her sailors spent two weeks readying the Andacoust and stocking it with supplies. While Amber hated the delay, she knew sailing on an unsafe ship would risk the lives of her men. So she simply prayed Saar wouldn't harm Billy before she reached him. The night before they set sail, Amber paced the ship's empty deck. Her heart pounded at the thought of actually going to sea. She wondered if her mother had felt this way when she tried to rescue Amber's father. Miles had suggested Amber give a speech to the men, something to inspire them and still their fear. However, as Amber tried to think of words to say, she realised Miles was wrong. The only words which mattered were the names on her body, and they only mattered in what she did with them. Morning broke to a fiery red sunrise, meaning a big storm blowing in. Amber briefly wondered if the sea was trying to stop her mission. 
but when Miles suggested they delay their trip for a few days, Amber said they were leaving immediately. She held her arm up to his eyes and showed Miles his name. If any of you are going to die, I'll know, she said. Trust me, I won't let it happen. Neither Miles nor the other sailors said a word as the Andacoust set sail. Once at sea, Miles piloted the trawler and Amber stood to the right of the wheel, tightly gripping the guardrail. The first rains broke across the bow by noon. By mid-afternoon, the winds neared gale strength. They passed a number of Windspur's ships racing for the safety of harbour. Miles asked Amber if they should return to port, but Amber told him to continue sailing towards deep water. She knew if any other captain had said those words, Miles would have likely ignored the command and turned for home. Instead, Miles glanced once at the fire-red names flowing around Amber's neck and nodded. By nightfall, the wind blew at gale strength and Miles ordered everyone to tie on their lifelines. Miles suggested Amber retire to her cabin, but she refused and continued to stand by the wheel. The storm raged for two days. Miles and the sailors worked non-stop to keep the boat afloat. At first, Amber stood as before, her hands paced white as they gripped the railing. But as the storm's intensity grew and the names of her sailors burned hotter and hotter on her body, her fear lessened. Around midnight, a massive wall of dark water appeared in front of the ship as two of the sailors' names flashed white hot and burned through Amber's raincoat. She ran to the men and shoved them to the other side of the ship. When the massive wave washed over the deck, a piece of debris smashed the spot where the sailors had been standing. If the debris had hit them, they would have been lost. Instead, their white hot names merely faded to red. Amber returned to the wheel as more of the names burned hot. She ordered Miles to turn the ship in a new direction, which he did, then to raise and lower certain sails. He initially asked why they needed to do this, but after her first response, that if he didn't, the men would die, Miles obeyed her orders without question. By the second day of the storm, the sailors eyed Amber as if Neptune himself were their captain. They both worshipped and feared her, immediately obeying when Amber told the sailors to secure certain tackle or to change course. They could see their names burning brightly on her skin. They smelled the smoke when their names burned through Amber's clothes. On the third day, the storm stopped. Amber leaned against the mizzen mast, exhausted, as Miles and the other sailors gathered around her. All of the sailors fell to their knees before her. Miss Tollester, Miles said. If a week ago anyone had said this ship could survive a storm like that, I'd have knocked them cold for lying. I'll follow you anywhere, ma'am. The other sailors nodded agreement and brought Amber food and water and unburned clothes and carried her to her cabin to rest. And with that, Amber knew they were ready to find David Saar. They sailed for days, zigzagging back and forth across the waters, Amber could feel David Sarr's cold fire name tugging her forward, as if the name begged to reunite with its namesake. At the beginning of their second week at sea, the Andacoust sailed under a full moon night. Amber was sleeping in her cabin when she woke with a start to Sarr's name burning red on her skin. She raced to the deck and stared across the dark sea. On the horizon, she saw the briefest flicker of sails in the moonlight. Ship to starboard, she yelled. It's Saar! Miles cursed. Saar's ship was bearing down on them with the wind to its back. Do we run or meet him, Miss Tollester? He asked. He's got the weather gauge. Amber wasn't sure. 
She'd never felt so many names burning red at once. Not only Sar's name, but also the names of Sar's men and Amber's own crew. It was almost as if the sea wanted to sink their ships so it could claim them all. While she didn't care if Sar and his men died, she wasn't going to risk her crew. We run for now, she said. He's got the advantage. For the next twelve hours they ran, sailing downwind with as many sails as their ship could bear. However, the Andercoost was a fishing trawler and not made for speed, while Sar's ship was the same small cutter he'd stolen from Windsor months ago. By the time dawn glowed on the horizon, Amber knew they couldn't outrun Sar. She watched his ship through a scope. He had one fewer man than Amber, but they were all armed. She also saw Billy, who was tied to the mast and looked half dead. With her body burning to the coming deaths, Amber broke open the box of rifles and pistols she'd purchased and handed them to the crew. None needed reminding what they had to do. If worse came to worse, Miles was to ram Sar's ship, taking them all to their deaths. However, when Sar sailed near their ship, he waved a white flag. A trade, he yelled. Billy boy for Miss Tollester. Miles protested, but Amber hissed him to silence. Until this moment, her skin had been nothing but pain at the coming deaths. Now only the names of Sar and his men burned. If she exchanged herself for Billy, Miles and the rest of her men would reach home safely. Without another word, Sar and his men tied up alongside the Andercoost. They tossed Billy, unconscious and bound like a gutted fish, onto the fishing trawler's deck. Amber leaned over Billy. He still breathed. She kissed him and assured Miles she'd be safe as she stepped onto Sar's ship. When Sar cut the ropes and sailed away from the Andercoost, Amber smiled at him. I'm going to kill you, she said. Wouldn't have it any other way, he said with a chuckle. Amber and David Sar sailed west. At first, the Andercoost followed, but when it became apparent Miles and his crew couldn't catch them, the fishing trawler headed back towards Winspur. Sar laughed as the Andercoost sailed out of sight. I should have put them out of their misery. Not that I won't get another chance. After all, you've given them no choice but to die out here. I didn't pick them to die, Amber said, noticing Sar's sailors were listening in. She was tempted to tell Sar that if she chose sailors to die, she would have picked him and his crew. But since they were already named on her skin and were also murderers, she felt it better not to raise this point. The names simply appear. You think so? Sar asked. He grabbed Amber by the arm and dragged her across the deck to a tall, middle-aged sailor. Amber dimly remembered the man from her childhood. He'd been one of the endless itinerant sailors who'd passed by her parents' shop each morning. This is Angus McPhee. Once you named him, he couldn't find work as an honest sailor. At least, not until I taught him to forget the honest part. The sailors laughed. Sar, though, glared at Amber. Where's his name? he demanded. When Amber didn't respond, Sar pulled her right arm out and searched through the blue fire letters for Angus's name. When he didn't find it, he pulled up Amber's shirt before she shoved him back, causing the crew to laugh even harder. Knowing she had only one chance to take control of the situation, Amber pointed to her right breast. Your name is right there, she told Angus as white hot letters suddenly burned through her shirt. Your name is written in the bullet which hits you in the chest and knocks you into the sea to drown. The laughter stopped. Amber turned to another sailor. You are Roberts Allen, she said, 
pointing to a new name which suddenly fled up on her leg and scorched her pants. You will die gasping for breath in a storm-tossed sea. She turned to another sailor. You are William Douglas Home. You will die when you fall overboard after drinking too much rum. As the sailors stared, Amber walked among them, naming their fates. She had never been around men whose deaths burned so clearly. She knew everything about these men, knew how desperately they yearned to escape their fate, knew that despite all their prayers and pleas, the only thing awaiting them at sea was cold and depth and eternity. Finally, she stepped back to David Saar. As for you, she said, a massive name igniting around her neck in the purest of white light. The sea's been waiting a long time for you. Once it takes hold of you, your death will make all the others seem pleasant. Saar smashed her in the face, sending her sprawling across the deck. We're not slaves to this bitch's skin, Saar yelled. True, Amber said, blood gushing from her split lip. Billy was also fated to die at sea, but I saved him and he's no longer named. I can save all of you, but hurt me and you're dead, Saar smiled. And for a moment Amber saw him as he'd first appeared, the handsome, unconscious sailor who seemed at peace with the world. Then his face turned back to anger and he yelled for his men to lock her in the cutter's storage hold. Saar sailed for two days with Amber locked in the dark hold, her only light a single porthole and the names burning on her body. Saar alternated between bribery and threats to convince her to remove their names from her skin. Amber, though, noticed that Saar never carried through on his threats. That, combined with how his crew treated her, bringing her food and water and unburned clothes, told her his power over the sailors was limited. As long as they feared her, she would be safe. On the third night, the cutter sailed under a clear sky, the moonlight pushing the sea down as if a child had coated everything in the smoothest of milk. The sailors were silent as the cutter chased a fishing trawler through the night. Amber knew what was about to happen. Angus McPhee's name had been burning white fire for the last hour, but she kept quiet until the ship pulled alongside the trawler. Suddenly, gunshots raked Sar and his men. Through a butthole, Amber saw several constables on the fishing trawler shooting at them. Bullets exploded through the cargo hold and ricocheted around Amber, who felt a sense of calm as she watched moonlight pour through the new holes. After a few more shots, Sar yelled for his men to cast off. The cutter sliced through the seas, racing downwind as the constables continued to fire. Finally, after a half hour of chase, the trawler's gunfire stopped. One of the sailors smashed open the lock on the cargo hold and pulled Amber out. Several sailors were wounded, and Amber saw that Angus was missing, no doubt hit by a bullet and thrown overboard to drown, just as she'd foreseen. She walked across the deck to where two sailors held down William Douglas home, who screamed and cried from a bullet in his leg. Is he going to die? One of the sailors asked. Amber nodded. Yes, but not from this bullet wound. And if you do what I say, none of you need die for many years to come. At that, David Saar ran screaming towards her with his pistol in hand. But before he could shoot, he was tackled by the other sailors. Let me go, he screamed. She's done this to us. Her, just her. But the sailors ignored Saar and hogtied him beside the main mast. Amber landed the sailors 50 leagues to the west of Winspur, with each man swearing a solemn oath by her skin never to return to the sea. As the men waded to the beach, Amber felt most of their names disappear from her body with a kiss. However, the name of one sailor remained, 
although he no longer burned as fiercely. Amber knew that man would one day break his vow and return to the only life he knew, but there was nothing she could do about that. Amber turned the cutter back towards Winspur and ran with the wind. She had never piloted a cutter before, but had learned a lot from Miles and her other sailors. As long as good weather held, she shouldn't have much trouble. David Saar, still tied up beside the main mast, critiqued her every move. When Amber almost swamped the cutter by taking a wave sideways, he laughed. That's what happens when you let a woman, Captain, he said. You should be respectful, Amber said with a smirk. Maybe the judge will take your respect into account before he hangs you. Sar spat at her feet. You ought to do it yourself, for once actually kill someone instead of fating them to die. Amber resisted the urge to hit Sar or to pull the pepper box pistol tucked in her belt and shoot him. Once Amber had the cutter on a solid heading, she tied off the wheel and walked around the ship, dropping and raising sails and tightening ropes. When that was done, she was hungry. She asked Sar where he kept the food. There's hardtack in the cabin, he said. The wood chest under my bunk. Amber found the chest and carried it onto the deck. However, there was no hardtack inside. Instead, a handful of dagger types lay there. Some showed her in the exact same shirt and pants she now wore, standing on the bow of this very cutter, with Saar dangling from the yardarm. Other dagger types showed Amber hanging from the yardarm. Amber stared at her swollen, broken neck and the rope that had ended her life. Where did you get these? she demanded, shoving a dagger type in Saar's face. That picture will be taken when you arrive in Winspur with me dangling from the yardarm, if you have the guts to do the deed, that is. Amber glanced at the daguerreotype. In it, her skin was free of the names, and Saar hung dead. She threw the picture at the mast, shattering it to dust and shards. She grabbed another daguerreotype, this one showing her spinning in the wind with a rope around the neck, and threw it at Saar. Who the hell are you? she screamed. Saar shrugged. I'm a child of Winspur and the sea has cursed us both. As he said that, a blazing white name erupted from Sar's skin, Amber Tolester. Her name ringed his neck, screaming in union to the letters of Sar's name burning her own body. However, the pain didn't come from Sar's foretold death. Instead, she gasped as she saw, in the purest of fire and heat, Sar's life flooding into her. My father was a sailor. When I was ten, I woke one night to my father's name burning into my chest and the pain of knowing he was dying. I ran to my mother's room and told her, begged her to save him. Instead, she slapped me for lying. But in the morning, she learned I was right. She ripped the clothes off me and saw the names and screamed, Witch, witch, as she beat me bloody. We left Winspur, left my friends and family to live in London, foggy. Stenching, hateful London. All I had known was Winspur. Now all I had left was knowing when one of Winspur's sailors flared and died. At twelve I ran from home and hired on a ship. Became a cabin boy, a cook's assistant. Worked my way to able seamen. The sailors all saw the names but thought them good luck, not being from Winspur and knowing them as real people. One day a Winspur sailor joined our ship. I tried to hide myself, but he recognised me, said he used to sail with my dad. For days, all I could taste was the man's coming death as he fell from the main mast during a sudden windstorm. I feared what the other sailors would do when they learned what the names on my body meant. So one night, 
While walking the alleys of London with my father's friend, I hit him across the head with a belaying pin. His name disappeared from my skin with the gentlest of kisses. I denied the sea its rightful death. So I learned to change the fate of the men on my skin. I learned to read what the names told me, to track them down. The only difference was when I met another Winspur sailor. I always killed him the first chance I got. Just to show the sea there was no fate it could decree which I couldn't change. One by one the names vanished from my body. Eventually there was only one left, Amber Tollister. I knew right away this name wasn't right, as if the sea was playing a trick on me. A little girl of Winsper who had recently lost her parents and was now carrying the burden of names as I once did. I felt the names on her body echoing to where the names had once been on me. Then the pictures began appearing. Each time one of the sailors named on Amber's body died, a daguerreotype would appear on my bunk. Some showed Amber as a young woman, others myself. Some showed me dead, others her. I knew the sea was taunting me for defying its will, but I didn't care. I refused to be fated by anyone. As I caressed my link to Amber, I prayed she would learn, like me, that we weren't fated to suffer this damned lot in life, that once she learned, I would no longer be alone. But instead, Amber merely watched as the men sailed away to their deaths, never knowing the pleasures to be had in changing their fates. So I decided to teach her. When the story finished running through Amber's mind, she pulled the pistol and held it to Sar's face, remembering her fear when he'd held the same pistol to her own head. His name burned red around her neck as Sar's memories of murder polluted her with their touch. But instead of pulling the trigger, she sat down on the deck beside Sar. So you think the sea has cursed us, and the daguerreotypes are a warning? You have a better explanation? Amber glanced at one of the daguerreotype shards on the deck beside her. The silver halide which had fixed the image of Amber's body to the glass fell away before her eyes. She watched the image disintegrate for a few moments before throwing the shard overboard. It doesn't matter, she said, reaching into the box of daguerreotypes. Doesn't matter if the sea did burn these names into us. Only matters what we do with them. As Amber stood up, she glanced at the waters all around them. Sar's name burned white hot on her body. The sea screamed for Sar, begged Amber to throw the vile man overboard so it could have its way with him. Amber dragged the bound man to the railing and leaned him over the water. The choppy waves threw spray at them, almost as if the sea reached for Sar. For the first time, Sar looked afraid. Don't give me to it, he said. I only wanted you to learn, to free yourself like I was freed. Amber nodded. She grabbed one of the cutter's sets of block and tackle, threw a rope over the yardarm, and tied the rope in a noose around Sar's neck. He thrashed and kicked, but he was still bound hand to foot and couldn't stop her. Once everything was ready, she asked Sar if he had anything else to say. He cursed her, but also smiled as she tightened the noose, as if pleased that Amber had finally learned what he'd been trying to teach. He continued smiling as she pulled the rope through the block and tackle, the bullies whining to the cordage, his smile never ending, even after he hung limp from the yardarm, spinning right then left as the wind howled in anger at Sar's death not being given to the sea. Only with Sar's final kick did his name vanish from her body with a perverted kiss. When Amber neared Winspur's harbour, 
she dropped the cutter's sails and drifted until several ships, including the Andacoust, appeared. Miles jumped aboard and helped steer the ship into the harbour. Miles asked several times if Amber was well, glancing from Sar's body hanging from the yardarm to the name still visible on Amber's skin. She assured him she was fine. Amber stood on the cutter's bow until they docked, then walked through the stunned crowd on the pier. She noticed Richard Beard near the dock with his daguerreotype camera, where he'd been taking landscapes of buildings. She started to ask if he'd taken a picture of her on the ship, but stopped, already knowing the answer. After all, two different versions of the picture were now burned into her life. The following Sunday, Amber and Billy married... Billy was still recovering from his injuries and could barely speak, but he croaked his I do and kissed Amber in a long, tight hugging embrace. All of the sailors and townsfolk cheered, tactfully ignoring the names pulsing a deep blue through Amber's white wedding dress. Amber continued to captain the Andacoust. Miles and the other sailors taught her all they knew, and soon she could outsail the best of them. She sailed the Andacoust in storms which drove lesser captains to port none of her crew were ever injured or killed. Sailors spoke of her uncanny knack of stopping accidents before they happened, of arriving in time to save drowning sailors from other ships. Soon she was known as the luckiest captain in the fleet and every sailor begged to join her crew. Occasionally, people who weren't from Winspur would board the Andacoost and ask Amber about the rumours of the names which still circled her body, whether those named men were still fated to die at sea. Amber would shake her head and say she hoped not. If the visitors persisted, Amber would point to a silver-framed daguerreotype hanging on her cabin's wall. She'd ask if they noticed anything strange about the picture. The visitors would stare at the image of Amber on the ship, her body free of the names, sigh hanging from the yardarm. While the missing names always puzzled visitors, if that was all they noticed, Amber simply nodded and said that was indeed the truth but sometimes a perceptive visitor would see a picture of Amber hanging from the mast, her body still covered in the names, her neck bent at an impossibly strange angle, and Sarah alive and laughing as he piloted the cutter. The startled visitor would ask how this was possible. Was this some trick of the sea, angry because it had been denied Sarah's death? Amber always laughed at such questions, but if the visitor pressed for an answer, she'd point seaward, and say the answers lay out there. All the visitor had to do was let the sea add his or her name to Amber's skin. Perhaps we can seek the answers together, she'd whisper, as the visitor stared in fear at the name swirling on his skin. So far, no one has accepted her offer. And there you go. Jason, thank you so much. Rita, thank you so much. And a big thank you to Josh as well. Top of the show for narrating Jason's Never Never story. Notice I didn't put the ending on, just in case I botched it up again. <laughs> I'll pop over to Josh's site as well. Josh has done some... Ama- Actually, Josh narrated another one of... Uh, and this was a kind of a, a mother of a novella of Jason Sansford as well. So I'll pop over to everyone's site and just say thanks. I just you know appreciate Jason's work and Josh's work. Josh, as you know, has been kind of hitting Asimov's and getting stories published there. And the last time I actually spoke to him, mind you, he says he was having a bit of a kind of rocky patch writing. So, and that was in, I think that was in December and November. 
Josh, I hope you can kind of get that sorted out. How it's it's now kind of February now. Let's come on, shake it, shake those cobwebs off, man. <laughs> and Rita, thank you again for a fantastic narration. Hopefully, we'll get some more stories by you soon. Next up is, and finally is, our very own Morgan Saletta. Morgan, I don't know you've got the time now, mind you. Morgan, this is a <laughs> uh, very busy lad. Morgan, sir. Hello and welcome to another installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything. Reflections on science, science fiction, and philosophy. Today I'm going to talk about the jungles of Venus, the deserts of Mars, and planetary ecology. So put your silver jumpsuits on, strap in, and enjoy this part of your ride on the Starship Sofa. I'm Morgan Saletta. In today's installment, I'm going to begin what will be a two- or three-part reflection on a network of interconnected ideas relating questions about life in the solar system and elsewhere, the climate and habitability of Venus and Mars, our understanding of life on planet Earth, and why our pale blue dot of a world, as Carl Sagan liked to call it, is such a fragile and special place it is, after all, the only spaceship we can call home. I'll be talking about the way science, scientific speculations, themselves often a form of informed fiction, and genre science fiction have treated such things as pollution, overpopulation, climate change, environmentalism, planetary engineering and terraformation, and the possibility of extraterrestrial life, all of which I will lump together under the heading Planetary Ecology. Today I'm going to focus on the way questions about the climate and possibility of life on our two closest neighboring planets informed our understanding of our own planet as scientists in the 19th and 20th centuries drew analogies between these three planetary brethren in order to understand them better. But before we dive into this, I need to set the stage a little. This and the following installments will be painting a big picture with broad brushstrokes, and we need a backdrop for perspective. The word ecology gets thrown around a lot. In its scientific sense, ecology studies the interactions between living organisms, each other, and their environment. And, while the science of ecology is definitely not the same thing as environmentalism, the two are complexly interrelated. Environmentalism is a social, philosophical, and political movement which seeks to protect the natural environment, often from human destruction. And since humans are living organisms and major players in today's ecosystems, and indeed the biosphere as a whole, planetary ecology necessarily takes humans and human activity into account. The term ecology was first coined from the Greek by the German biologist Ernst Haeckel in 1866, some five years after Darwin's publication of The Origin of the Species, which introduced the ecologically important concepts of natural selection and adaptation, the middle of the 19th century was a time of great change, particularly in England, then at the center of the Industrial Revolution. And at the same time that we were beginning to understand the natural world in a modern scientific manner, with major developments in the new sciences of geology and biology, human beings were also witnessing the rapid transformation of the natural world which industrialization could produce, the great smogs of London and the slag heaps of northern England, for example. Both in England and elsewhere, there were backlashes against this environmental transformation and degradation, including the world's first modern attempts to regulate air quality and reduce pollution in the form of the British Alkali Acts, the forerunners of today's clean air legislations. At the same time, speculations about life in the universe, whether intelligent or not, were rife, 
and excitement about our nearby neighbors, Mars and Venus, grew as telescopes began to reach the magnifying power necessary to make out their details, a red-brown surface on the one hand and a mysterious cloud cover on the other. Not surprisingly, in speculating about the climactic conditions, habitability, and what forms of life might exist on Venus and Mars, scientists used the Earth as a kind of mirror, projecting reflections of what they knew about our planet onto our closest neighbors, and later taking what we knew about these planets and reflecting it back onto our understanding of our own world. In the late 19th century, a set of theories about climate change and human civilization intersected directly with science and science fiction. In the popular image of Martian canals, particularly as promoted by the astronomer Percy Lowell, of course, regular listeners to Life, the Universe, and Everything will remember that I did a particular installment on the canals of Mars, which is available here at the Starship Sofa if you're interested and haven't listened. In the late 19th and early 20th century, many scientists and geographers followed German geographer Friedrich Ratzel in believing climate to be the determining factor in mankind's progression through stages of civilization. Climate change was seen as a unidirectional process in which deserts and desertification would eventually claim the planet. Lowell and others saw Mars as a perfect example of this, with the Martian civilization mounting heroic engineering works to stave off the inevitable in a tragic fight for life on a dying planet. Lowell's Arizona locale provided him with a perfect mirror for this process, and he saw in its petrified forests and the works of the American Reclamation Bureau evidence of similar processes at work on both planets. Not surprisingly, this tragic and heroic vision of a dying Mars and its technologically advanced civilization was enormously popular with science fiction writers. In Blues for the Red Planet, episode 5 of Carl Sagan's Cosmos series, Sagan waxes lyrical about Lowell's Mars and his own boyhood love of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom and H.G. Wells' malevolent Martians in War of the Worlds. Lowell's Martians were benign and hopeful, even a little godlike. Very different from the malevolent menace posed by H.G. Wells and Orson Welles in The War of the Worlds. Both sets of ideas passed into the public imagination through Sunday supplements and science fiction and excited generations of eight-year-olds into fantasizing that they themselves might one day voyage to the distant planet Mars. I remember reading with breathless fascination the Mars novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs. I journeyed with John Carter, gentleman adventurer from Virginia, to Barsoom, as Mars was known by its inhabitants. Wandering among the beasts of burden called Thotes, winning the hand of the lovely Dejah Thoris, princess of Helium, and befriending a ten-foot-high green fighting man named Tars Tarkas as the moons of Mars hurtled overhead on a summer's evening on Barsoom. It aroused generations of eight-year-olds, myself among them, to consider the exploration of the planets as a real possibility, to wonder whether we ourselves might one day venture to the distant planet Mars. And of course, scientists themselves, Sagan among them, let their imagination loose in speculating about possible Martian life forms, even if they didn't take Lowell's claims seriously. But in the 1960s, as part of NASA research that would later culminate in the Viking missions, James Lovelock, 
now famous for his Gaia hypothesis, which I will also talk about in a later installment, began looking at the atmospheric composition of Mars and realized there was a profound difference between the Earth's atmosphere and that of Mars. Whereas on Earth, life makes its presence felt strongly in our atmospheric composition, which is maintained far from chemical equilibrium, the Martian atmosphere showed none such disequilibrium. Lovelock argued that this was a strong indicator of a lifeless world. And while the Mariner and Viking missions to Mars forever dispelled dreams of Martian civilization and all but ended hope for life on Mars, cautious hope for the latter has re-emerged with the discovery of extremophile microorganisms here on Earth and definitive proof that water once existed on the surface of Mars. But Mars was not the only planet with which analogies to our own planet Earth were made. Venus, our sister planet, one closer to the sun, drew considerable attention as a possible abode for life, and it too served as a kind of distorted mirror of Earth, as scientists sought not only to unlock its secrets, but to understand the workings of our own planet, Sagan's fragile and precious pale blue dot. In 1870, the great Victorian popularizer of science, R.A. Proctor, wrote, In size, in situation, and in density, in the length of her seasons and of her rotation, in the figure of her orbit, and in the amount of light and heat she receives from the sun, Venus bears a more striking resemblance to the Earth than any other globe within the solar system. At the same time, there was much debate about the rotational period and the length of Venus's day, with some scientists arguing for a short, Earth-length day, and others arguing for a very long day, equal almost to its year, and suggesting the possibility of a tidally locked planet. Science fiction fans and readers of speculative science from prior to the 1950s may well remember Venus as a steaming tropical world, or else as an ocean planet, humid and wet. Today, of course, we know that Venus is a broiling planet with a crushingly dense atmosphere, mostly of carbon dioxide, and in the grips of a runaway greenhouse effect. In the final part of this installment, I'll discuss the discovery and elucidation of the greenhouse effect and how comparisons between Venus and Earth have helped understand questions of climate, habitability, and possible ecology of planets, as well as how the scientific and popular image of Venus developed and changed over the last century. However, I will save a more detailed discussion of climate change and the greenhouse effect here on planet Earth for the next installment, in which I'll be talking about pollution, overpopulation, and climate change in some detail. In the 19th century, a series of scientists, starting with Joseph Fournier in the 1820s, started working out the science of how gases trap heat from the sun, which arrives in the form of visible light, penetrating the atmosphere easily, but once radiated back from the Earth in the form of infrared radiation, cannot escape the atmospheric envelope so readily. In 1859, John Tyndall conducted a series of experiments and identified water vapor and CO2 as being of great importance in this process, despite the relative scarcity of CO2 in the Earth's atmospheric composition. Enter Svand Arrhenius, a Nobel laureate chemist and scientist of broad-ranging interests, who I have spoken about in earlier installments with regards to the idea of panspermia. It was Arrhenius who, in 1896, quantified the way changes in atmospheric CO2 could alter the temperature of a planet as part of his broader interest in the causes of ice ages here on planet Earth. Arrhenius understood that changes in CO2 levels, while only slightly changing global temperature by itself, could thus radically change the levels of water vapor in the atmosphere, thus massively amplifying the initial change in temperature. 
Other scientists were beginning to understand the geophysical processes at work that affect atmospheric composition, and Arrhenius turned to a fellow Swede, Arvid Hogborn, for information on the carbon cycle, how volcanic emissions produce CO2, and how that CO2 is absorbed by the oceans and its microorganisms, and in turn eventually re-released or sequestered. It turns out that Hogborn had, in the course of his work on the carbon cycle, also calculated the rate of CO2 production by industrial burning of coal, which he was surprised to learn roughly equaled natural processes. Both Hogborn and Arrhenius realized that this industrial source, essentially the release of geologically sequestered carbon into the atmosphere, could warm the planet. But neither were very concerned by it, perhaps owing to their cold northerly clime, but also because they thought it would occur over thousands of years. In the popular 1908 book, Worlds in the Making, Arrhenius speculated that future warming, based on increasing rates of CO2 release, might occur within a few centuries, however. But, unfortunately, the idea was still treated by Svant, Arrhenius, and others as an interesting theoretical possibility. Arrhenius himself was still focused on understanding ice ages. Interestingly, it is also to Arrhenius that we owe the scientific image of Venus that science fiction writers helped in no small part to popularize, that of a hot, fetid jungle world. In his popular book of scientific speculation and lectures, The Destinies of the Stars, published in 1918, Arrhenius argued for a hot and humid planet. According to Arrhenius, we must therefore conclude that everything on Venus is dripping wet. A very great part of the surface of Venus is no doubt covered with swamps. The temperature on Venus is not so high as to prevent a luxuriant vegetation. The constantly uniform climatic conditions which exist everywhere result in an entire absence of adaptation to changing exterior conditions. Only lower life forms are therefore represented, mostly, no doubt, belonging to the vegetable kingdom. Arrhenius based this speculation primarily on the presence of clouds in the atmosphere of Venus which could be observed by telescope and which he presumed were clouds of water vapor. As an interesting side note, it is interesting to speculate on what Arrhenius might have conceived of Venus had he or other scientists known more of its atmospheric composition, particularly the large amounts of CO2 present. Regardless, it is Arrhenius's vision which, despite growing scientific evidence to the contrary, dominated both popular speculative science and genre science fiction up through the 1950s and 60s. Edgar Rice Burroughs set his Venus series on such a world, known as Amtor to its humanoid inhabitants. The hero, Carson Napier, has many adventures, and, as with his Martian counterpart, John Carter, many of these involve rescuing princesses. But unlike Barsoom, Antor is a water world with tropical continents, an image directly influenced by Arrhenius's vision of Venus. In Olaf Stapleton's classic work, Last and First Men, published in 1930, humans flee a dying earth and wipe out the sentient aquatic dwellers of its oceans. In Robert Heinlein's Future History Universe, Venus is an uncomfortable, swampy world where humans grow cash crops and share the world with its peaceful and primitive natives. In fact, the list of books and published stories up until the 1960s, which feature a wet, tropical, swampy, or ocean planet, goes on and on. But there are a few notable exceptions, such as Frederick Pohl's and Cyril Kornblus' The Space Merchants, which present Venus as a desert world. The Venus we know today unspeakably hot and enveloped in a dense acidic atmosphere was already suspected in the 1940s when Rupert Wilk, 
calculated that the large amount of CO2 found by telescopic studies of Venus could produce greenhouse temperatures in excess of the boiling point of water. And in 1958, radio telescope observations reported temperatures upwards of an astonishing 600 degrees Kelvin, which some scientists were reluctant to accept as valid. In 1960, a young doctoral student by the name of Carl Sagan turned to the question of the greenhouse effect on Venus, calculating that the atmosphere was producing a very efficient greenhouse effect, which he suspected was caused not just by CO2, but also by water vapor, a hypothesis later disproved when it was realized that Venus's atmosphere was much thicker than previously suspected, thus explaining the strong runaway greenhouse effect. In 1962, the Mariner 2 flyby put a decisive nail in the coffin of the wet Venus theory, and as with Mars, Venus in both speculative scientific works and genre science fiction is now the setting for terraformation and colonization efforts, rather than hosting an indigenous ecology of its own. But studies of Venus have continued to influence how we understand Earth's own climactic history and atmosphere dynamics. According to physicist and historian of science Stephen J. Weert, realization that Venus's atmosphere and climatic history differed so radically from Earth's prompted scientists to completely abandon their previous simple chemical models of the atmospheric composition and realize that complex feedback mechanisms were at work. Another way the study of Venus helped inform our understanding of climate and climate change here on Earth is in the study of sulfates, which on both planets are emitted by volcanoes and on Earth by human industry. Sulfates can increase a planet's albedo, reflecting light back into space. And one of the commonly suggested forms of geoengineering essentially terraforming the Earth to reduce the impact of global warming, is by the purposeful injection of sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere. But more of this in my next installment. One final way in which analogies between Earth and its two closest planetary neighbors, Venus and Mars, has contributed to thinking about planetary ecology and science and understanding our Earth is through the idea of a habitable zone, or the so-called Goldilocks zone. After all, if one neighbor could be a hothouse hell, and the other a frozen wasteland, what makes the Earth so special? In 1953, the ex-Nazi doctor turned American space scientist Hubertus Strughold wrote a paper entitled The Green and the Red Planet, a physiological study of the possibility of life on Mars, in which he referred to zones and ecospheres. An article titled The Liquid Water Belt was published the same year by astronomer Harlow Shapley, which, like Strughold's article, focused on the necessity of liquid water for life, at least life as we know it. While most work on habitable zones focuses on planets or moons, at least one science fiction writer, Larry Niven, has proposed another possibility, a habitable zone within a gas torus orbiting a neutron star, an idea and an ecology, though not a planetary one, which he explores in detail in Integral Trees and its sequel, The Smoke Ring, must-reads for any hard science fiction fan. And with that, I'll conclude this installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I've been exploring ideas of planetary ecology and the way analogies between Earth, Mars, and Venus shaped our understanding of life here on planet Earth. Along the way, we visited the jungles of Venus, the canals of Mars, and had a good look at our own pale blue dot. I'll continue these reflections next time as I explore how science, science fiction, and the popular imagination have dealt with issues of planetary ecology, and I'll zoom in on questions of pollution, overpopulation, climate change, and planetary engineering. Thanks for listening. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Back to you, Tony.
Aye, thank you. Well, that's it. Show 223, Put to Bed, a Jason Sanford special. We'll be doing more of these specials where we kind of concentrate on one writer, but it just had to be, in my eyes, kind of Jason to, to kick this off. Pop over to Jason's site. And you know, as well, a lovely guy, do you know what I mean? I'm kind of always pestering him for things as well, and he always kind of comes up trumps. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone that's kind of been involved in this week's show. Don't forget my two little webinars, do you know what I mean? That would be fantastic to see you over there, especially, you know, the writer's workshop, Pete Watts arguing that scientists make shitty science fiction writers. <laughs> fantastic. Don't forget if you want as well, Keep this old bird going, pop a donation over there as well, that would be fantastic. And the man himself as well, Mr Larry Santoro, don't forget, Tales to Terrify, comes out every Friday. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storing Silver, a deadly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Aerot will be opened in three. Two, one.